welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, Amount of Works, at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the Farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. All right, I have got a repeater with me. Okay, I have got a repeater for this outing and heavyweight one at that. He is Dr. Inferno, host of Doom Mintamori podcast, which discusses crime, parapolitics, and apocalypticism and extremism, all subjects close to my heart as well. Thank you so much for joining us again, Doc. It's always good to be on the farm and to show that I am not just a barn animal or farm animal, but I am sentient. Absolutely. All right. This is going to be an amazing show. Doc and I are taking a deep dive into the strange and terrible saga of Kiwi Farms. If ever there was a freak show, it is this sad saga. Weaponized altruism? Check. Incest? Torturing animals? Check. Gang stalking and trolling? Check. Blackmail and induced online suicides? Check. National security creeps and mind control? Check. Mass shootings? Check. Really, this episode has got it all in terms of farm tropes, uh, which is, uh, I think, it's kind of sad in some ways. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But I promise you're going to feel a strong urge to shower after this one. That I can at least assure you of. I mean, oh, my goodness. Mm. Anyway, on that note... Let it start the show. is one of the great questions to be asked on the farm. Jason, what is weaning? 
it's probably the only time this has ever been touched upon in your uh in any of your shows historically and what a uh what a question to ask uh definitely well basically what weaning is it's a failed troll it's uh see a lot of times people have made sort of a sport out of trolling chris chan and other locales it's kind of a pastime for a lot of people and a lot of people and i would dare to say and you know this is i would say there's a little finesse in art to trolling uh it's it's sort of like it it goes into you know chris chan he's went through so many iterations over the time period um so some of the examples i would say is um you know pretty much feeding into Chris Chan's delusions, uh, making, uh, you know, crude sexual sort of uh, reference to, uh, you know, Sonichu, making Sonichu fanfic, uh, you know, just people also kind of doing what has already been done by other trolls of Chris Chan. One of the more memorable trolls of Chris Chan, I would say, was Liquid Chris. And Liquid Chris is a very interesting one. He's actually, I would say, out of all the Chris Chan trolls, that is, he's the one that actually imitated Chris and had Chris almost convinced that uh, he was the real Chris Chan. He basically just went there and said that, uh, you know, I'm the creator of Sonichu. I'm Chris Chan. He got like this other female to accompany him to support this delusion. He would, uh, you know, he would say that he's uh, a different name and, um, in many ways, also, when you troll Chris Chan, it has to be something that is effortless and organic and not uh, not something that is forced. And a good example of like a, a ween would definitely be Isabella Janky and, and the Wildcat, which we'll talk about later on. So that's pretty much what weaning is. It comes from the term epic win. Uh, and it's um, a mockery of people that fail troll people and try to farm and milk uh, locales. Uh, did the phenomenon of weaning exist prior to Chris Chan, or did no? It kind of, okay, so it developed concurrently. Pretty, pretty much, I would say, locale culture in general, uh, pretty much started with Chris Chan. There was stuff like something awful. There was stuff like Encyclopedia Dramatica, but uh, fundamentally, Chris Chan is the originator and the OG. I would say the of all of locale culture. All right, well, let's get into uh, this fellow then. He is either, what is it, Christian or now Christine Weston Chandler, alias Chris Chan, alias CWC, and probably some other ones uh, that I have not thrown out there yet. Why is he the most documented person in the history of the web, Doc? Well, let me say, let me just tell you, I think, uh, I think Christine Chan would appreciate that you properly gendered them and gave them their correct pronouns. Now, up until like 2014, they were Chris instead of Christine. That's kind of interesting. And they have their own specific genre called Christory, a.k.a. History of Chris Chan. And to be honest with you, they come from a rather less than glamorous beginnings. I don't know, depending on some people, I would say they were the prime candidates uh, for being autistic. A lot of the conditions existed for their op their weaponized autism. Well, he was born to an engineer father uh, named Bob. And Bob, it was, uh, I think he was a patent holder at Weston House. That was where he worked. He married rather late in life. He had Chris Chan. 
and uh, also, you know, Barb, who will figure prominently uh, in uh, some of the sordid tales later on. She uh, she was also 40. He was like 50, I think 56. So they were rather advanced in age, which is prime candidates for autism. And in earlier periods of his life, it was kind of noticed that Chris Chan was kind of different. He was uh, different than everyone else. And he was kind of a type that was easily exploited by his neighbors and by family friends. Uh, one of the rather sad stories that Chris accounts is that when he was being babysat by the local people, uh, by the local girl in the, in the neighborhood, he was often locked and placed and put in a room with like toys and uh, neglected. Uh, there is an incident where uh, the family friend, the girl, the, the daughter of the family friends, she told Chris that there was <laughs> a Casper the Friendly Ghost underneath the, the crawl space in her house. And she locked him in the crawl space. They had to, <laughs> the father had to get Chris Chan out because otherwise there would have been nobody. Um, and for most part of his life, up until seven years old, he didn't speak. And around seven, Chris was brought, he was, a, he was diagnosed with high functioning autism while seeking therapy at James Madison University. And well, what's interesting about this and some of the stories that uh, is recounted about Chris is they are largely apocryphal, meaning we don't really know a lot of the stories or the recounts of Chris's early um, genesis into Chris Chan. Uh, but he, there's a common game that like Chris actually developed for himself called Kick the Autistic, where he figure his autism figures prominently in every single aspect of what he does. And some could even say that he used this a lot of times as a manipulative type of tactic uh, to get attention. So the phenomenon of Chris Chan kind of came about when he developed if i can interject no, go ahead go ahead uh, didn't he also uh he was a gamer right from pretty early in his life correct yes that's correct there's actually a there's a documented uh you know kb toy store sonic uh you know the hedgehog yeah <laughs> sonic the hedgehog cartoon that came out in 1994 he entered it and i think in the contest you had to uh, you had to like say what Sonic said at the end of the episode and then mail it in. He's he showcased locally in Charlottesville as no, uh, winning this large speed. Go ahead, Stephen. It, it's really strange. I I couldn't help but be struck by how there were almost some parallels with his early what uh, life in this one movie uh, that I actually was fairly obsessed with as a kid called The Wizard. Uh, oh yes, very Sonic yes, Chris very said. similar to The Wizard. Yes. Yeah, Christian Slater view bridges, but it's also about this kid who's kind of a, a genius um, who is obsessed with video games. And I think it's like what his older brother is taking on this journey to play uh, the new edition of Super Mario Brothers 3 for this uh, this big contest, I think, that they're throwing in California for it. So, yeah, it was I, I can't help but wonder if he had uh, seen that movie as a kid growing up um, since we're roughly around the same age. It's um, 
certainly it was something that I saw quite a bit as a kid and I couldn't help but uh, think maybe that was uh, something that might have inspired him to some extent. Well, what what is the obsession, I wonder, with autistic kids with Sonic? That seems to be, is that because of Chris Chan or is that just something that is just commonplace that I don't, they like not... whirly blue uh, hedgehogs that run fast and clear <laughs> levels? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I, you know, I've seen that a lot with how Sonic does seem to have this weird cult following, but I was never really much of a gamer, so I'm not somebody who can really weigh in on this kind of stuff. But yeah, that's um, just another strange aspect of all of this. And, you know, kind of what we were talking about before we started recording, just the... Uh, the strange culture with gaming that started to emerge in the U.S. and Japan over the last 20, 30 years or so. Um, but anyway, continue with uh, Mr. Chandler here uh, before I'd so rudely interrupted you there. No, that's okay, Stephen. Uh, let me let me continue. Okay. First off, he kind of came to the everyone's attention back in on, uh, on 4chan. He posted that there was this thing for board games. I think it was called Slash V. That was there was a board game community there, and he was uh, basically spamming his Sonichu uh, comic book. He was like, and people were like, kind of making fun of it because it is crudely drawn. It's very juvenile type of painting and and, <laughs> and depictions, and they were kind of mocking him for it. And it it turned out he like you know he didn't take it very well. So kind of the cardinal rule of the internet is if people mock you and troll you, you kind of just gotta ride write it out and you know of course chris chan being autistic probably didn't realize that they were kind of uh you know there were a lot of times it's just to get a, a rise out of you and so they they poked the remarks about the uh, sonichu cartoon and uh, then soon like the the typical people something awful started noticing encyclopedia dramatica which i think is many ways kind of the precursor to kiwi farms uh, you know, kind of took notice of him and they started making these uh, write-ups about him. What's interesting also is that prior to that, there was people on these these forums that talked about him. They were said, there's this weird kid that is in my local community college that is holding up a sign that says, looking for a, uh, <laughs> a boyfriend less girlfriend. And uh, he was actually using the Sonichu comic to to do that. And it just started as like kind of an urban uh, myth, and soon they found him, and they started uh, they started posting about, and that sort of set the events for people like Josh Moon, which we'll probably talk about later in the uh, C Wiki, and uh, that kind of just kicked off the whole entire, you know, local phenomenon, and thus started the first beginnings of Christory. All right, so you've been alluding to this comic book, Senachu, a bit here. Uh, can you get into that a bit for us now? Because uh, I believe there were, what, some other people who did issues of it besides Chris, right? Well, um, most of the other people that did the issues was a parody. It was, there was stuff like Asperchu and stuff where they would, uh, they would actually make dirty versions of Sonichu. They'd make him like a homosexual. They'd make him like all different. They do all different kind of variations of him. They'd also make him where they, they'd always be claims of they're the creators of, you know, Sonichu and Chris Chan was not the real creator. So they were, it's been a part of an elaborate like troll type of trope commonly uh, with Sonichu. But yeah, he's, he is the originator of Sonichu. 
which now, uh, believe it or not, Sega has recognized as a real mascot. Really? Uh, and this is like what first got him like attention more broadly on the internet, right? Yes, that, that's where he got attention from the Slash uh, V forums on uh, 4chan. And, and it... thus mocked and uh, made into a locale. Yeah, I mean, it's like, what exactly inspired him to just do this this comic book about himself anyway? I mean, that in and of itself just seems like, I mean, I know you're saying the guy's really like off base. And well, he's, like, he's got Asperger's syndrome. I, yeah, I'm guessing he's kind of in, he's deluded. Well, yeah, I mean, certainly it would seem to. Brings up our next point here. Uh, so when did uh, Christine, when did they start believing that there was an international cabal surrounding their life? Well, let me first, uh, before we go into that, uh, Stephen, let me get into the Sonichu, the backstory, oh, if you don't mind. Go for it, go for it. Okay. So basically, Sonichu started as this like project in high school. He was doing this like art project where he was, he had to make, uh, you know, for design class, he had to make the CD cover. And he was obsessed both with the characters of Pikachu and Sonic the Hedgehog. And believe it or not, there is a very elaborate backstory on all of this stuff, which is uh, kind. Of, you're right; it is kind of unique and interesting that uh, that he he actually devised something like this. It does show uh, a little bit of a creativity, even if it is crudely drawn, and uh, you know, it is kind of a piece. Some people might even say it's kind of cringy, but it did. He does indicate sort of there is like a creative. So he wanted to use both Sonic and Pikachu, but they had to be non-copyright. And so what he did is he crafted this elaborate myth to where they merged together. And the premier issue of Sonichu, of course, was issue zero, which explains the origins of Sonichu. Uh, it was published uh, November 24, 2014. Basically, in Station, once upon a time in Station Square, it's under siege by the Chaos Monster. And uh, Sonic summons the, the Chaos Emeralds, which is part of the video game, uh, to become Super Sonic. So as he attempts to tackle the Chaos Monster head-on, Pikachu then runs towards the action and watches Sonic uh, bum-rush the Chaos Monster and hits him in the ultimate attack. He, he bounces off the Chaos Monster into the onlooking Pikachu, now, the direct collision of the Chaos Monster into the onlooking Pikachu causes this to mingle with uh, Pikachu's like electricity. It then launches this rainbow. And this rainbow then emerges and goes over to... Um, goes over to uh, Pikachu and merges with... Pikachu and and actually brings them both together. There's this direct collision, and he's like five miles. Now, what's interesting is that Chris also included a female version, of course, uh, which was naturally supposed to be the mate of uh, Sonichu and uh, named uh, Araichu. Turns her into an anthropomorphic hedgehog, and basically both Sonic and Rosachu. Um. They they um they kind of are created from all this from this like rainbow energy that just is emitted from this collision. So um, also they are residents of a place called uh, Siwikiville, which is named after, of course, because 
Chan, Christian Weston Chandler. And he is the mayor of there. He is basically the god of there. Not only is he the god of there, he is also the um, mayor. He is also the father of Sonichu. And of course, Rosichu has a female counterpart named Kel, uh, which is probably named after one of Chris Chan's gal pals uh, that he, uh, you know, probably had a crush on as a kid or, or, uh, or, were fr- or was friends with. And that is uh, pretty much the origins of Sonichu. As crazy as that is, that's the origin. I don't even know where to begin. I mean, it's almost like a subconscious Roshikrushan thing almost, but you're trying to like... Uh... You think so? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, kind of central to this is the whole sort of notion of, you know, the magician. Uh, well, first, I mean, obviously within the Rose and the Cross, I mean, the Rose is kind of symbolic of the arts, of the muses, of the workings with that. So you use these and then, the you know, the Cross is uh, religion. So these are the techniques that you use to mold reality, the arts and religion. Uh, with the ultimate goal in some circles, at least so it's held, uh, that upon death, the magician can create his own world. Well, who knows? He can uh, become who... a god in and inhabit. So that's essentially what Chris was doing. <laughs> I mean, who knew? Who knew that Chris Chan was, uh, was actually a Rosicrucian? Well, I mean, it's an archetype thing. Rose first started to appear in this sort of archetypical form in the Middle Ages through things like the Romance of the Rose. I mean, this was, you know, like the 13th century, well before the uh, the manifestos appeared in the fervor. I do kind of feel like with some of this stuff, it does, you know, get into interactions with the archetypes, with the muses and that kind of thing. It's another strange aspect of... Uh... Well, if I may ask you, Stephen... Okay. Um... There's some interesting aspects of, I say, like mental illness in, in ancient cultures. I've noticed this, that this is like kind of central sometimes to like European shamanic, uh, shamanic cultures. Uh, the mentally, I mean, people we would have probably considered autistic or people we would have considered to be kind of on the spectrum. They would have had a specific place as I would say, probably like a shamanic. Is that is that any is that true? I'm not very familiar with that, but I've I've explored that. Is there any indication of that in any of your research? Yeah, I mean, at least according to Lavenda, I mean, you certainly see elements <clears> of that in some of like Joseph Campbell's accounts of shamanism and like the Mass of God series. That I know there was the one, I think it was the Eskimo shaman that he had chronicled, where I mean, the guy had essentially killed thirty something people and had used a variety of fear tactics or something to keep his village from testifying or giving evidence against him to the uh, British authorities uh, but yeah I mean that does seem to be the case with a lot of shamanism uh, which again is you know really ambiguous kind of catch-all phrase but I mean in a lot of native and indigenous societies in North America at least it does seem that there was the president that you know these sort of eccentrics um you know like you're saying people who in more re- uh modern times would be diagnosed as mentally ill or rather in traditional societies uh basically seen as being closer to these muses or these archetypes or gods interesting or whatever and they you know inhabited this role it was something that couldn't be born into you had to be chosen for because of your disposition uh, because of these factors, and frequently they were outsiders, kind of kept at arm's length in the yes. society. So a lot of times, I mean, they were kind of hermit-esque figures. And I do think that there's something to that beyond question. And again, you know, it's 
fascinating when you do sort of see these modern day figures like CWC, where even though as absurd as a lot of this stuff seems to be, I mean, it almost is playing out this almost ritual psychodrama. It's yeah. Just, it's, you know, again, it's otherworldly in a lot of ways. Oh, anyway, was there any more with... Sin- yeah, Stephen, I'm wondering, if you, did you see, ever see the movie Midsummer? No, not yet. I am familiar with Hereditary, but yes, I, I it's it's been on my list of films to watch for a while. Well, in that film, in that film, this depicts kind of the old ways of like the Europeans. And in that film, there is a particular figure and character that pretty much fits all of the archetypes uh, that you describe of like being an elevated kind of play, not really elevated, but kind of a niche place for uh, people that are on the spectrum. They were shunned at the same time. They sort of also were uh, revered in a certain kind of way. Uh, it's kind of a, interesting that that was uh, depicted in that movie that's all i wanted to add i just thought that was interesting oh yeah well it's not surprising i mean you know again this has always been sort of um, a reoccurring theme probably since the dawn of any kind of civilizations you know i mean how do you integrate eccentric and brilliant people into them obviously there's been a lot of creative solutions to that over the years to put it mildly but okay, so do you have any more on Sonichu then? No, that's it. That's all about Sonichu. For but I mean I could let me just be honest with you, Stephen. I could go, it's vast, believe me. If you want to see how much like history there is out there, there are forums dedicated to this stuff. I couldn't believe it when I first looked into it, but yeah, that's that's pretty much the premise of Sonichu. That's how he came into existence. And I think I'll I'll just end it there. All right, well, then how does it tie into uh, CWC's belief in an international cabal surrounding their life? Okay. Now, I'm rather pragmatic when it comes to this. I think it has, it's interesting that this is like a part of their world, but at the same time, I think Chris Chan made this, you know, Sonichu as a way to talk about his life. And not just his love quest, but to explore his entire interactions that he had with the trolls uh, historically on on the internet. And Sonichu, every time he has like some kind of you know trolling endeavor, whether it's uh, somebody imitating Billy Mays, <laughs> uh, you know, and and uh, the the <laughs> the Shamwell guy. Or the Shinjiro uh, Miyamoto, the Nintendo guy, or Jimmy Hill. Uh, this kind of plays out in this comic, and also it kind of reflects like his everyday interactions with the world. Uh, so Chris Chan, he thinks that due to all this trolling, he's kind of center, center place of existence. He thinks that he is like part of a grand network of people. Uh, that goes beyond far Charlottesville or even uh, Chris uh, or C. Wikiville. He thinks that it is like just a vast uh, world out there to where he is the center of. And in many ways, this can also, this can probably be a reflection of his Asperger's syndrome, but it also can be uh, seen in a way that he conceptualized things and, and the way he uh, presents uh, Sonichu. And that's, you know, it's a combination of him, like uh, his creativity and also his neurological conditions and also some of the trolling that's involved. And what's interesting is like Sinjiro Miyamoto, 
uh, was it, there's actually a person who who trolled him and said that the guy from Nintendo, the the uh, the C, the founder of like Nintendo, the the uh, CEO, uh, he wanted to produce a Sonic game. He wanted to put a Sonic game into existence, and uh, Chris believed this with a, a lot of naivete. Uh, the same thing goes with like the Jimmy Hill character. He was like an announcer at the BBC. Somebody had imitated Jimmy Hill and uh, convinced him of all these different things. Um, so that's sort of like where I think, uh, you know, Chris Chan sort of saw himself, um, you know, as being part of like a global cabal. And, you know, in many ways. I think he is part of a global cabal now, probably not in the way that he, he thought he was, you know, or that he was center place to all these events, but he is definitely kind of went down in uh, internet uh, infamy in many ways. No, that was another thing that I was thinking where there's again, this sort of eerie parallel with Russia crucianism in his life, because you could you know, once again, look at the, uh, the original Russia crucian manifestos that created the fervor. Uh, in Europe in the 17th, early 17th century, there really was you know, no Rosicrucian society or anything like that. It was a, you know, it was a LARP. It was a yeah. game for the curious. But in the aftermath of the manifestos, there were Rosicrucian orders everywhere to say nothing of the actual esoteric Masonic lodges that were so inspired by them and all of these other secret orders that started to spring up like mushrooms all across Europe. Yeah. I can actually see something like this actually happen to uh, one of these uh, locale figures. I can see them uh, eventually becoming uh, religions and, and, and sex and cults. Uh, One thing knows that the internet definitely is not, uh, it's, it's not a place that is, uh, it's not alien to the internet to, to just cults to spring up. It it does exist. I can see that. And I mean, getting you know to what we were sort of talking about, uh, you know, earlier uh, before we start recording in regards to the internet and just the transformations that it's having. You know, I mean, I was talking earlier about the use of the arts, you know, the Rose and Rosicrucianism, at least one of the interpretations of it. Uh, and obviously, I mean, this has had so much effect in the different kinds of arts, painting and architecture and film and television. But I think with the internet, I mean, it's a whole new ball game because it does democratize the arts in a way as never before. And now, I mean, it also enables access to um, people's personalities, their minds in a way that we've never really had before. So, you know, again, if you kind of fall on my premise here of using this to shape and manipulate reality, I mean, yeah, I absolutely could see that. I mean, if anything, I think that would be the most logical progression with how spirituality has begun to advance in the digital age. And I think the next significant cult will probably be largely uh, derived, at least initially, from online sources and that kind of thing. You know, if you, uh, you know, it's like Baldriard said, it's hyper reality, the simulation and simulacra, it's, uh, it's become uh, almost hyper reality to where uh, this sort of uh, fake reality is more pleasant than uh, the reality itself. So people sort of apply it to their everyday life. Are, are you familiar with that concept, Stephen? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, what Baldriard was talking about, with the hyper reality premise. All this like kind of fits in uh, with the whole entire uh, uh, Chris Chan saga and, and just Internet culture in general. And that's going to be sort of my focus. Uh, I... I like investigating like the high, high strangeness and 
how the internet interfaces with the real world. It's just, it's interesting and fascinating that this is all arising. There's just all these ideas distilling, not just Kiwi farms, but, you know, a lot of, a lot of people think it's cringe, you know, because the, the, the whole QAnon thing kind of mm-hmm. gave it a black eye and gave it tarnished its uh, sort of reputation. But I, I think it's becoming more relevant because the, you know, the zoomers, but I guess I'll get into this later. Um, uh, but the Zoomer generation more is more focused on the internet than you know previous generations, as uh, you know millennials and uh, Gen X uh, didn't even use the internet. It was so it's mostly going to be sort of a Zoomer phenomenon. The new frontier and just high weirdness. We're already seeing that and stuff like you know reality shifting, randonautica, I and mean, all this other crazy stuff. But, but yeah, we can get into some more of the philosophical implications here as we get maybe closer to the end. But yeah, it's there's definitely a lot of interesting uh, philosophical questions that are raised by this saga, to put it mildly. <laughs> but uh, let's talk some ideal guys here for a moment. So who are these characters or characters? I'm not sure if it was like one or two more people. No, it's um, it's see, you got to understand whenever when anybody ever trolls Chris. It's not just one person. It's actually teams of people that uh, almost are like playing a game. It's not just one person that's trolling Chris. It's it's actually almost like a uh, uh, it's like an it's like an ARG. It's like it's like a video game itself. It kind of takes a life of its own. Uh, it's not just uh, one person ever. There there have been like some you know single solitary people like Liquid Chris. Uh, Liquid Chris is sort of the exception when it comes to uh, the trolls of Chris Chan. Um, but out of Liquid Chris, I would say the the idea guys are probably the most impactful upon his entire worldview. They altered his entire perception and worldview. Do you want to elaborate on that? Okay, let me elaborate on that. So as I said previously, the whole phases of Chris Chan, it goes in different cycles. Um the cycles, the golden era kind of of Chris Chan trolling is known as the miscreants. The miscreants are not really, you know, a specific group, but they're a loose sort of collection of people um, that was like headed by a guy named Clyde Cash. Clyde Cash, uh, because like Chris Chan went into a kind of hiatus after his father died. Uh, he told he made up a story about like his brother uh, his brother Ryan Cash died. His brother like uh, committed suicide because of the whole ending of uh, you know the Sonichu series and and also like the the online presence. And this kind of signified they they break it up in sagas. So you have like these people, Liquid Chris. You got Jimmy Hill, of course. You got the Shinjiro Miyamoto. Um, there's also a specific troll that emerged from the idea guys that are kind of adjacent to the idea guys. And that's blue spike blue spike probably before Isabella Janky was probably the most malicious troll because he made uh Chris Chan like do sexual acts with a body pillow. He also made him, uh, you know, kind of stick the uh, Sonatu medallion, medallion, which if you see Chris, it's very he's very iconic. He wears this kind of a plaid uh, polo shirt and also the Sonichu medallion, which he has attached like sort of significance, almost like religious and spiritual significance to the uh, Sonichu medallion. So he did all these things. He it turns out also 
that he was, uh, you know, he was sexting with uh, Chris Chan because he told him he was a girl and, and he used this uh, to extort. And yeah, I know I'm going to, I'm getting into sort of some, some really, really edgy territory here, but I mean, this just is a common uh, occurrence with the, with the idea guys and also with blue spike. So the idea guys getting into them, they emerge, I would say around roughly 2018 they are a, a later iteration. They are much after the golden age of uh, Chris Chan trolling. They get Chris Chan isolated in a discord and they start feeding him this information about um, these different sort of worlds. Um, they start telling him things also about Sonichu. They tell him that Sonichu is in a polyag. You know, polyanimous relationship. Um, they they kind of change around the uh, gender of Sonichu. Um, they extort him out of six thousand dollars because they take a lot of the stuff from Blue Spike, um, saying that he's a, a pedophile and if like he doesn't pay the six thousand dollars, he's going to be uh, extort. You know, he's good. They're going to leak it to the public. So he believes this. Uh, naturally, being that he has Asperger's, so in many ways they're they're preying on Chris Chan and his naivete. Um, they feed him this concept uh, known as the dimensional merge. Um, this is a concept where he believes that uh, the real world and the cartoon world, which Sonichu are a part of, will merge together. And they will become like one. And this is sort of an apocalyptic event uh, to uh, to Chris Chan. This is uh, a final a final phase in that idea. So you can see that a lot of like these things are done as trauma against uh, you know Chris Chan. They're doing they're they're inducing a lot of trauma on him, and they cause a lot of you could say inflicted a lot of pain on him. And. That is largely what they're, uh, you know, what they were trying to do. They take it from a particular anime. I'm trying to find the um, the anime that they they actually took it from. I think it was Hyperstereo. It's very interesting. No, I was just thinking, you know, in general, this is also sort of in keeping, um, you know, the kind of the CCRU, the Cybernetic Cultural Research Unit, the whole hyperstition and. Obviously, in the mouth of madness, which was uh, kind of like a holy text almost in some wings of the CCRU, the whole sort of notion that you know reality and fiction were being blurred, notion that's become increasingly popular uh, in recent years. And to be honest, I mean, it seems like with the Zoomer generation, especially, I mean, this has become, I mean, almost a dogmatic premise. I mean, you see it again with things like reality shifting, where you're trying to. Uh, create these whole worlds like in the harry potter universe or the lord of the rings universe or something like that so yeah i you know again this is sort of like the i think the long goal of uh, rashikrushanism and maybe even the working of the archetypes and the muses and this kind of thing i mean to ultimately you know go beyond the point where myth and fiction is affecting reality to i mean the point where they're almost blurred it's it's incredible in a lot of ways 
this is almost in the zeitgeist of the time. And I mean, another, you know, aspect of this that had occurred to me that's really eerie as well is, um, you know, prior to the ideal guys, the gang stalking and stuff uh, that was happening to him, there's almost like a strange parallel to what was later reported with figures like Tracy Twyman and Isaac Cathy and what have you as well. Can, can I interject something about certainly, that? Certainly, certainly. Now, now, largely, Stephen, I've always attributed like gang stalkers to be crazy people, like just people that are kind of making up these stories because maybe their life is boring. It's not interesting enough. Um, I've never really believed uh, gang stalking as an organized phenomenon, like the government is doing it, because that, to, to you know, in my logic, that would take a lot of money and a lot of resources that maybe the federal government doesn't have or, or any of these other entities, but it does seem that there are some certain substantiated cases of gang stalking, you know, and I'm, I'm, I have an open mind about it. It's just that, you know, you watch all these videos of people on YouTube and it's like, I've investigated them a lot of times. Uh, they're talking about energy weapons. It seems like they're just making it up out of the blue. So it's hard to distinguish whether these people are legitimate or whether they're mentally ill. No, I know what you're saying, and it was a phenomenon that I had really dismissed out of hand until uh, really the last couple of years, as well as I had started to look at it more. Honestly, you know, you can kind of find uh, historic precedent for it in things like uh, some of the latter day, or not latter day, but some of the 70s accounts, like with Carrie Thornley, for instance, uh, where there would just be all this strange stuff happening to him in Atlanta, and there were multiple witnesses to attest to it. There would just be people who would come up to him and restaurants and stuff and it would start acting in this really peculiar really? usual fashion oh yeah 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 and then you know an even better example of that would be uh, in the 80s with uh, paul benowitz uh the famous uh ufologist who was essentially driven mad by richard doty but again it was in a company of uh you know doty was um air force office of special investigation sort of the uh the crop of officers around him but again it was the same type of thing you know there was all these eccentric individuals approaching him uh there was the possibility that maybe some kind of psychotronics were being used on him uh but is you know it's a valid point like you're making you know just the logistics of it but the more i had you know really looked at this though i mean you have to sort of kind of keep in mind that there is this whole nether world of like larpers and what have you out there from these sort of discordian and subgenius circles and the more that i've looked at this especially as this stuff started to go online i do think that at times these intelligence services and the military have enlisted these groups i mean not you know, directly but through cutouts and cutouts and so forth for these kinds of activities because i mean again there's just there's a lot of crazy people out there who get off on this kind of stuff you know and i mean i mean that's what christian makes money kind of off a... of it i mean yeah. they're probably not going to ask a lot of questions about where it's coming from you know and, i, mean, I agree like, um that's one thing i've discovered with kiwi farms and uh, christian there are a lot of people out there as you described that uh, get a, their jollies off uh off just, you know, stalking people and uh, putting, sitting them up in certain circumstances to watch them stumble and watch I mean, them like fall. I mean, really with the weaponization of social media, it's effectively made trolling into almost a full-blown profession in certain circles for certain types of things. And I mean, oh, it is, trust me, it is. I, it is. And, and Kiwi Farms is kind of at the center place of that along with uh, 4chan and 
uh, we see these like sort of enigmatic figures that emerge, you know, from the far right, like people like uh, Weave and all the rest of these people. They're they're like you wonder where they, these people came from. You wonder if these people are like on some kind of payroll and they, they interject themselves in all like, uh, you know, media, not just the right, not just the left, but every single aspect it seems of life are, are they're placed into. Yeah. I mean, it's again, I mean, I know it seems far out to a lot of people, but there's been a lot of work done. I think constructing these networks and sort of getting them into these like loose affiliations of groups and so forth, usually, you know, kind of under the banner of counterculture. Uh, And yeah, you know, it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about how does civilization deal with brilliant eccentric individuals. Well, I mean, this is again the kind of stuff that you can um, take some of these people out who have real potential to do damage and put them towards what's viewed as kind of constructive means and again it might seem insane but in this case of cwc i mean uh, this particular individual you know there were plenty of people willing to put together a troll army to stop this person oh yeah uh, yeah. without getting any kind of compensation for it so just you know imagine if somewhere in the far distance there was a private military company dangling money through the various cutouts what could be done you know i mean again it's it i don't think it's as much of a stretch as a lot of people realize when you really sit down and think not about in it. the modern era it's not yeah yeah all right uh so how about the the watchmen um uh, well let me just let me just touch upon something else about before i go on to the watchmen because that go does play it. it does play into the um the idea guy okay now you have to understand the idea guys they severely messed up uh chris chan's mind they severely messed him up to the point to where you know he altered uh Sonichu. and these like were permanent effects on chris chan these are permanent these the dimensional merge is something that did not exist before the idea guys. And uh, these are just part and part of like his whole entire uh, mythos. Uh, in addition to that, they also made, um, you know, let's say uh, Chris, you know, see Wikiville into like this, uh, you know, Nazi uh, kind of uh, Nazi era place, uh, which is kind of a prominent with, let's just say online to, uh, for an extremism they and addition to that they also held him like i said at ransom and uh they they um they changed just the entire dynamic of like the uh the city so they also told um chris chan that he was a type of samurai figure he was a he was sort of a god uh samurai type figure they even implemented that and said that he achieved apotheosis so um that was uh, something interesting that uh, they interjected. So go ahead, Stephen. I didn't mean to dwell too long on the idea, guys, but I think they're a very prominent uh, portion of uh, Christory. No, absolutely. And I mean, this is fascinating, especially that they would interject that, you know, dimensional stuff into it, um, especially since, again, I mean, he had a lot of, you know, uh, pop culture uh uh you know mojo on social media by that point so i mean it's a great way to interject these uh rather arc previously arcane concepts into you know more mainstream uh debate it's very interesting on a lot of levels uh to put it mildly 
But anyway, okay, so how about these Watchmen? Who are CWC's Watchmen? Okay, well, the Watchmen actually are a spinoff group uh, of what was called the Guard Dogs. This was something that was assembled by Null, a.k.a. Chris, uh, a.k.a. Chris Chance, I would say kind of de facto uh, guardian angel, and to some people I would say Handler, uh, who was a part of, uh, who would establish uh, Kiwi Farms. So what he did is he assembled a group of trusted, and I put trusted in parentheses, uh, moderators, because you'll see later on how a lot of these uh, people probably don't have Chris Chan's best interest. They were just sort of using him uh, for clout. Uh, so he did this, and eventually, like, he was able to unbrainwash uh, Chris Chan, you know, he was able to make him hate the idea guys. And this took like some concerted effort. He had to do a lot of uh, unbrainwashing of, you know, of Chris Chan to get him back to uh, some warrant, some uh, normalcy. Um, so there's like multiple different people. I'm not sure of like all of the watchmen. I'm sure of like two watchmen, which went under the name not that's N-A-U-G-H-T, not oftentimes he was known as Doppelganger uh, or Doppel in other circles. This is kind of a mysterious figure that would drift from one subculture to another. Any kind of French subculture, uh, this guy would be a part of. And sort of the tag along uh, was this guy named Wildcats. And they were just babysitting Chris Chan. They babysat him in real life. They actually went and babysat this this uh, grown autistic man in real life. They would drive him places. They would take him places. They would guard him against anybody because you have to understand there's like different internet personalities uh, that want to latch on to Chris Chan. He's a hot commodity. Like all these, these other internet personalities, they want him for like some kind of clout. They want him to display him in like their, their case. Uh, their little glass case and show him off to the world. Uh, so Chris Chan is like quite, uh, uh, you know, quite the hot commodity online. And many people I would argue probably used uh, Chris Chan. Uh, this is called troll shielding. Troll shielding is where they, uh, you know, you, you protect Chris from all the uh, sort of uh, trolls and the weens that we decide uh, we described earlier. Although in my, in my opinion, like wildcats, uh, will prove to be a, a very big ween. Um, and that's pretty much what the, uh, what the watchmen were. They were, they had their own forum called the Knights of, uh, the Knights of Sea Wiki. That was the name of their, their discord. Each one of these uh, discords, they're kind of like their own little uh, provinces online. They're like their own little city states. And that was there. It was exclusive uh, Chris Chan was pretty much given free reign in that uh, in that discord and he could bring whoever he wanted into that discord into uh, you know the Knights of Sea uh, Wiki. So uh, that is the watchman. One of these uh, watchmen became quite notorious. His real life name is Sean Walker, but he is a lot of online handles, WTC, psychic, espion, and so on. So what's this guy's story? Oh boy, does this guy have a story? Um, it seems that locale culture has spawned people uh, that are kind of toxic and they go from discord to server to server. Uh, 
attempting to find very eccentric people, exploit them for their own attention, and uh, they try to uh, milk them for all they can. Literally, <laughs> the locales, they milk them for whatever they can and to get like certain attention out of them. Now, this guy had like a small time YouTube channel uh, that was sort of writing off the coattails of that he was a Kiwi Farms moderator. And everywhere he went, he reminded people that he was a person who was a protector of Chris Chan. He told people that he rubbed it in people's faces. Uh, he wasn't well liked, by the way, by the other watchmen, who I, I don't know much about the other watchmen, but you know, unfortunately, these people have. Uh, because I've been on various different discords, they've crossed my path, and uh, they weren't the they weren't the best people. Uh, so he would go from place to place, doing whatever he could to extort people, blackmail people, get collect people's doxes, uh, and you know the dox people do whatever he could. Now, what's interesting about this guy is this guy knew no limits of depravity. He made friends with this uh, really weird. Uh, type of locale who was named Mad Thad. And he's like, he used to brag of that. He was the only person that had the story of Mad Thad. And for people out there that don't know who Mad Thad is, he's a person that was, uh, he he's this African-American like in, kid that could be seen like clutching an anime pillow and um, brags about how, you know, about the, about, you know, stuff like the disturbing stuff, like the age of consent and stuff like that on various different forums. It's just uh, kind of disgusting. Um, and he was also like a documentarian. So he would go around and he'd collect all these like, uh, you know, locales like Pokemon. And and he, and also, in addition to that, what made this guy like extra strange is that he's half Filipino and he's half white. And he's known to frequent really extreme and fringe uh, white nationalist uh, telegram groups. He is obsessed with people like Randy Stare, which is this really unusual like spree killer, which, you know, really took the, uh, you know, uh, mer the merger of life and death and fantasy and reality and the, the different worlds merging together Um uh, to the extreme. And in addition to that, he's, he's, um, he'll play later on when we start getting into like, you know, Isabella Janky and the whole, like, uh, you know, other affairs with the uh, Chris Chan. Uh, they actively doxed people. They actually exploited people. They actively blackmailed people. And uh, this included, you know, Wildcat doxing his friend, not, who, you know, ironically also gave him his position at Kiwi Farms, gave him his uh, moderator position. And not, by the way, also used to, was was kind of a weirdo as well. He would brag, too, about how he was uh, privy to Kiwi Farms. And that is the saga of uh, Wildcat, um, which uh, thankfully has uh, come to a close. On to the next figure in this sordid affair, a woman named Isabella Loretta Chanky. So okay. when did she become interested in Chris and launch the now infamous Chess Club Discord group? Okay. 
Isabella Jenke is is uh, another interesting person, and uh, uh, rather, if uh, you ever would encounter her in real life, you, you'd probably uh, say she was rather unpleasant, uh, considering what the things she's associated with. Both uh, your olfactory senses would definitely tell you that uh, Isabella Jenke, and also like her, um, you know, you'd also say that maybe she should be called the Portabella. Uh, should be her name as well. So she was immersed in internet culture. She was pretty much a pick me girl from 4chan. Uh, she was, she'd go on 4chan and say, Oh, I'm so lonely. Um, you know, I, I, um, I, I am, you know, I'm a 4chan girl. Pay attention to me. Now she alleges she first saw Chris Chan at a Rubik's cube conference uh, somewhere around 217 in Baltimore. Um, Chris Chan used to frequent, uh, you know, My Little Pony conventions, uh, which is, I'm not going to even get into that. That is an entire yeah, there's uh, like sort a of whole subculture <laughs> around that. And... I'm not going to get into uh, that because way, that's, go uh, ahead. One other thing, Doc, that I meant to ask was Chris a gifted kid or was Loretta? Or Bella, whatever she wants. You know, to. that's that's interesting. You, I know that's a common thread in a lot of your uh, podcast where you, you know, you go over the the gifted program. But I don't know if Chris, I don't think Chris Chan was. Um, Chris Chan uh, was probably, I would say, in like self-contained classes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point on that one. But Isabella, I think she could have been. She could have been. There's not much. Uh, known about her past if we were to know her past i think she probably would have been in the gifted program although i gotta be honest with you um it could be due to her you know her arrogance she doesn't really display a lot of uh you know she doesn't display a lot of like uh acumen when it comes to you know opsec or to uh or a certain kind of craftiness or genius when it comes to any kind of spy craft she's rather uh, sloppy uh, with most of her dealings uh, with covering her tracks. She's not very good at it. Uh, but that would be interesting to look into her. But go, good luck looking into that because um, her father and potentially her stepmother and her real biological mother, they actually go around from uh, YouTube to YouTube uh, either posing as someone else to, de to as detractors or as uh, uh, threatening people with lawsuits and uh, getting people to clean up stuff about uh, her. So it's, it's hard to tell if like uh, she was a part of any kind of gifted class, but I would not doubt, I would not doubt that she was probably part of a, a gifted class. I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't doubt that. Yeah. Well, we'll get into that more here with the peculiar background of her parents in a bit, but um, so anyway, what else do you got on us? On so a... let me, let me get into like the, the, uh, the chess club that, the chess club is rather interesting because this is where um, Isabella Jenke did most of her dirt. This is where she spied on other students. This is where she would mock students. This is where she would uh, stalk students. Um, and this is where a lot of uh, her planning, and this is what I mean by sloppy, is that she literally would plan everything within that, uh, that Discord server. The Discord server... Uh, was then there were two Discord servers. There was one for the the school which she would set up with the Texas Tech University. Somehow let her set up a chess club, uh, which was a normie uh, type of server. And then 
the kind of counterpart, I think, is Chess 22 was the server which she uh, she planned all her nefarious uh, activities, which included uh, stalking students, um, labeling, uh, you know, certain kind of uh, ethnic minorities and and uh, people that were, you know, transgender and gay. She would uh, she would put their names in there and she'd, she'd go after them. Uh, so this is uh, what she mostly did with the chess club and and later in later times period with with uh, Chris Chance she would uh she would also like brag about uh, also being part of uh, sort of the subgroup of like uh, the Chris Chan group the Pixies and that uh, she was uh, privy uh, to you know to to knowing Chris Chance she would she would use that as a uh, type of um, a bragging right. Um, so that's pretty much what there is about uh, Isabella Jenke as it regards to, uh, you know, the, her formation of the chess club and uh, some of her backstory. Is this her actual identity? There have been some rumblings. She may be a woman named Maxine Sidero. Uh, I think it's Sidero. Sidero. Okay, so how about that? Well, I don't really. I mean, this is like questionable because like she... She has rather, um, her identities are rather spurious. She goes from place to place, of course, uh, with different monikers and different screen names. She has very different sock accounts or troll sonas. Uh, most likely, I suspect uh, Maxine's Sidero is probably a real, um, from what I could see from uh, various different like Google searches and that she's probably a real woman that uh, appears to be Romanian descent. Now, when I looked at her, uh, some of her title page, she does have a connection to IT. She does have a connection to uh, computer engineering. But what's curious, there's also an Isabella uh, Loretta Jenke uh, based in New York, which I don't think is even related to her, uh, who's a real estate agent. So what I think is, I think she's probably using this person and stealing their identity and uh, using this on other forums to hide herself because she does have quite a bit of people that are after her uh, and are mad. And that's one thing about it. Uh, she pissed off Kiwi Farms and <coughs> say what you will about Kiwi Farms. It's not really a you know place you want to piss off because these people, they have a lot of spare time uh, and they can find uh, pretty much a proverbial needle in a haystack uh it seems they they have that kind of uh deduction from their uh sort of weaponized and collective autism uh so my opinion i think her personality is indicative of like somebody of antisocial personality disorder so uh in many ways um this would also fit into like some of her traits like voyeurism uh one one interesting thing about her in like you know uh, just to revisit her time at uh, Texas Tech University, uh, which I think to this day she hasn't been suspended, is that she would plant cameras in dorms uh, in just about any one she could. And like she'd monitor her roommates. Uh, so this is like kind of indicative of uh, the early signs of somebody with like antisocial personality disorder. So uh, to assume the identity of somebody is not beyond uh, the characteristics of uh, Isabella Jenke.
let's talk some Randy Stare for a moment. You know, we had mentioned it a little bit briefly before, but let's get into him a little bit more in depth now. Who is he and how does he fit into all of this? Now, the reason why Randy Stare was brought into this is because we mentioned Wildcat and Wildcat being a collector's of uh, locales and uh, a purveyor of like internet lore and wanting to be the internet lore master or the bard of the internet um, to achieve like some kind of clout. He um, was obsessed with this uh, really, and maybe you could even say maybe Wildcat saw something in himself that he also saw in Randy Stare. Randy Stare was this deranged YouTuber that went by the name Andrew Blades. And he was host of this, uh, in the early aughts, there was this thing called Pioneer uh, Productions. He produced Let's Plays skits where he used like a stick and horse, a toy frog and a whale. He did like these various different um, acts and skits from it. He Now he became obsessed with a very obscure Nickelodeon cartoon called uh, Danny Phantom character by the name of Ember McLean, which I believe was this character uh, who was uh, died uh, in a fire, died in a fire and uh, was, uh, you know, brought back to life and as a ghost. And he was obsessed with this. He felt a type of spiritual connection with uh, Ember. Um, and he wanted to achieve with, you know, union with Ember's ghost. Uh, and matter of fact, he created a spinoff. Uh, so known as Ember's Ghost Squad. Uh, where he he actually um, here's the th- interesting thing about Randy Stare he believed that uh, there was also like Chris Chan you know there was a merger with the cartoon world and the real world he believed that there was a kind of a merger between only he believed in more of the the darker elements of that he believed that kind of life and death were centralized and merged together and uh, to do so he wanted to join the uh his his uh ghost squad and to do so he would have to like uh die or kill himself or uh commit some uh you know atrocious act such as like shooting up his supermarket uh you know job his his stock job in the supermarkets uh to shoot it up and and to also uh you know commit uh, kind of suicide by cop now Wildcat being obsessed with Randy Stare and also like frequently uh, he frequents really, really fringe uh, white supremacist groups. And I don't know if you're aware of this, uh, Stephen, but there is an entire kind of disturbing subgenre of true crime, a true crime community to where they idolize these sort of racist uh, spree killers. Um, and they call it's just it's been really fascinating to see the rise of true crime i mean you know you're seeing it obviously with almost this this cult that's been built around certain serial killers of late like jeffrey dahmer so i mean it really doesn't surprise me that you would be seeing the same thing with some of these spree killers as well but they they are um they're obsessed with like a lot of them are obsessed with like dylan roof dylan roof has achieved cult status amongst a lot of like online uh we could say white supremacists they have it's achieved like a type of uh almost like religion uh they call them the saints so wildcat was hanging around these people that uh, believed in that sort of stuff 
And at the same time, he was also intermingling with the Kiwi Farms crowd. And he was trying to fuse the two worlds together. And, uh, you know, he's, I mean, which is kind of odd because he's like, he's half Filipino, half white. He's not exactly, you know, the archetype, <laughs> archetypical like Aryan. Um, he's, he's like what is known as a Hapa. He's, and he has sort of like identity crisis and identity issues. So he's merging these two worlds together and he's trying to get Chris Chan to become a spree shooter. He's, he's trying to convince Chris Chan that he can go down in history as, uh, you know, one of these spree shooters. And he can also join, you know, Sonichu in the afterlife and he can like fuse these different worlds together and he can achieve uh, this, this in the afterlife and he can actually live um, you know, as, as the spree shooter. So, I mean, there's, it's kind of dark and twisted, but this is what is, uh, this is what was in the mind of Wildcat when he was trying to like groom Chris Chan into believing uh, in this. And Chris Chan actually did take to some of the elements in Randy Stair's world. He believed that uh, the ghost squad were protecting him. He believed they were protecting him from like his previous trolls, like the idea guys. And some of the uh, some of the people like Blue Spike, uh, so he he actually did uh, started incorporating some of what Wildcat was telling him, and uh, that is pretty much how Randy Stair, Wildcat, and Chris Chad sort of like go together. Yeah, no, it's just again, this is really uh, incredible on so many levels, and especially with the it, it's interesting to me that. Um, well, a few things like first off too, this uh, Randy Stair guy also apparently idolized the Columbine shooters. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Kind of another one where, you know, obviously no white supremacist, but I mean, there's a full blown cult that's really been emerging around them for you know, probably close to two decades now. Uh, but especially with the rise of uh, Internet culture, uh, it's, you know, something that's profoundly disturbing on a lot of levels. Uh, but it's also interesting that this shooting happened in Eden Township in Wyoming County, Pennsylvania. Uh, Pennsylvania, again, was ironically um, or not region of the country that uh, had a very strong Rosicrucian presence uh, from very early on and a lot of other arcane sects. But certainly you had the Euphrates uh, cloister, which uh, was very steeped in Rosicrucianism and also the uh, Moravian Church. Uh, which William Blake's parents belonged to and which had some early uh, ties to the Rosicrucian movement going back to the 17th century. They had established uh, several communities uh, in this area of eastern Pennsylvania as well. So there's a lot of that. And I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with some of the uh, work that people like Michael Wan or Russ Ben have done on uh, you know, this area around uh, eastern Pennsylvania and the 40th parallel. But there's some really interesting stuff with that uh, is that the psychic highway Stephen? no 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 that would be the 37th if i remember correctly okay or no the psychic highway is the 42nd sorry the, uh, pretty much all these parallels between like the 33rd and like the 42nd are really important but in this case it's the 40th that really cuts through like pennsylvania and the philadelphia area the lancaster county region and some of these other uh, uh places but like Michael Wan and Russ Ben have done some really good stuff on uh, Philadelphia, essentially arguing that it was established what we were kind of talking about before with this sort of intention to kind of create reality and even mold the future because Philadelphia was one of the churches from the Book of Revelation and in creating mm. the city 
you're essentially trying to set that in motion in a certain sense. So there's a lot of this just strange uh, stuff like that and a lot of levels here. I don't entirely know what to make of it, but yeah, it's, it's definitely quite... Uh, and where Randy Stair was, uh, was a part of that? It was a part of that entire... Yeah, he's in the Eastern... Yeah, yeah, okay, so yeah, he's only... Okay, so yeah, this is uh, only about an hour and a half from Bethlehem, which I believe was one of the uh, towns set up by the Moravian Church. Uh, I think then it would have only been so far from Philadelphia as well, if I remember correctly. Yeah, okay, it's a little over two hours from Philly. It's a little further than that, but yeah, this is still kind of getting into that whole region where you had uh, like the Euphrates cluster, you had the, the Moravian churches. Um, there was another weird one too in that whole area as well. Um, shoot. The Harmony Society, yes. <laughs> Christian Theosophical Society uh, set up by Johanna George Rape uh, or Rap. I'm not sure exactly how that's pronounced, but yeah, they actually had a very strong influence on uh, architecture ironically as well but this was the the group that set up harmony pennsylvania uh so yeah they're fascinating i had never really looked at it before but pennsylvania was just a wash with all of this kind of stuff so yeah it's really interesting that again with its strong russia christian lineage the use of the arts to manipulate reality and Rajakrishnanism that you would have this this shooter in this particular area who was so fixated on these kinds of notions of cartoons blending with reality and well this is just something else man on so many levels goodness gracious and we he was to... he was really living out uh, Roger Rabbit every day yeah in his yeah. life all right so uh Let's get into the even stranger aspects of that <laughs> possible. So explain to us how uh, CWC, how they were manipulated into committing incest. Okay. I just want to give people a warning on this. This is unpleasant. And um, I, I think if you've been listening to the show over the years, you're probably uh, well acquainted and some of uh, Stephen's you know, you know, research, especially with stuff he's done with the, you know, Profumo affair and like his book it, that uh, there's like some unpleasant uh, themes that are discussed in, in those various different works. But this is even more unpleasant and kind of a minor level of where uh, stuff like sextortion uh, becomes like a predominant theme and it will continue to be a predominant theme in uh, not only the internet, but in, uh, you know, parapolitics and other avenues in life. Now, before I get into that, let's, let me explain a little bit about Isabella Jenke's motivations. Uh, her motivations was that she wanted to go down in history as being like the ultimate troll of Christian. It's kind of a, like I mentioned previously, it was like a sport. Uh, it was kind of a, you know, a competition. People would try to outcompete one another to troll uh, Chris Chan. And she wanted to go down in infamy. She wanted to be like the ultimate troll that owned uh, the title. She hated Chris Chan. Um, she wanted to uh, induce, really, she wanted to induce a type of uh, a suicide in Chris Chan. She wanted to make uh, Chris Chan kill himself and actually film it uh, and actually uh, 
have that title under her belt. And it's believed that uh, perhaps on uh, Texas Tech University that this was a commonplace for her that she had tried to induce a type of uh, other students to induce uh, suicide on them. Now, it's contested whether uh, Chris Chan, she induced, let's say, Chris Chan or provoked uh, Chris Chan to commit incest on with his mother, Barb. Uh, that's kind of contested. Uh, what if you listen to like the four hour conversation uh, that was leaked about the, the incest call, you'll notice that she and by the way, that call is not uh, to be found. Uh, only leaked portions of it are um, are found and they kind of exist on different YouTubers have uh, have documented it. What you discover is that Chris Chan starts discussing this with her and any reasonable like person would have said you know this is wrong chris don't do this uh don't do this to you know to your mother uh but she kind of egged him on she said uh he made like kind of remarks about uh about you know getting uh you know in intimate with his mother and she said uh she was cheering it on and it's very creepy if you hear her talk about it it was creepy i mean it's like some of the most creepy stuff i've heard and you could so it's just hear the affectation in her voice She's just sort of cheering it on and she's leading uh, Chris on and and it, it's just extremely creepy stuff. And, you know, there was a, there was kind of an elaborate sort of plot when it comes to covering up uh, this entire entire ordeal. And it went on for months before it was finally leaked. And she had all these different conspirers that I mentioned earlier that were in like the, uh, the chess club and the chess 22 doc discords. So, you know, her friends are kind of interesting themselves and, you know, anything she tried on Chris Chan, she would actually also do to her friends as well. Um, she had a friend named and, and just to shift here, shift here a little bit and talk about her friends, which conspired with her. She had this friend named Lewis and Lewis pretty much was a syncophant to uh, Isabella. Uh, Lewis would do anything that Isabella demanded. He would, he would, um, if Isabella told him to do something, uh, she would, he, he would absolutely do anything for her. And he, what's interesting about this is that Lewis was often the target of not only Isabella's mockery, but also of attempting to turn Lewis into, let's say, a female. Uh, he would actually, she would actually ingest. Uh, she would actually in inject uh, estrogen into uh, Lewis's drinks, food, etc., and force him to eat it. And she would, uh, she would also get her other friend, who went by the name Alice, uh, aka Griffin. Um, AKA Allen, uh, who, by the way, was a, uh, I think, a, an, an African med student out of all things. And Lewis heard, Lewis himself was, was actually an Indonesian, um, considering the fact that, you know, Isabella Jenke has certain kind of views on, on race and, and uh, other things. It's kind of interesting. They kind of tagged along. Um, so Allen 
was the person that leaked a lot of the stuff on Isabella Jenke. Uh, he was not only conspirer, but when, you know, the whole the whole entire ordeal, it's it's very elaborate how this thing kind of played out and and it played out for months. Um, and I don't I'll get into that. It, it, it's a it's a long, long, extensive like process. What happened with uh, what, what happened when she was discovered? Uh, but we definitely know for sure that all of these different people were conspiring together. And that included Wildcat, who we discussed previously. Wildcat was actually uh, double-crossing his friend, Knot, And at the same time, he was also conspiring with Jenky to dox Knot to also hide any kind of... Uh, anybody who suspected Isabella uh, and the other Watchmen suspected that she was you know, encouraging... Chris Chan to and cheer him on to do all this and uh, also to impl implant any ideas in his head. He was going along with it. Uh, primarily, I think Wildcat's motivations uh, was also because he thought he could um, make Isabella his girlfriend. But at the same time, I think he could also maybe utilize her to weaponize her to take over uh, Knott's position. And I, by the way, I apologize if, if a lot of these names are obscure that a lot of people don't know about this, but uh, I don't know how any other way to actually tell this without like just saying screen names <laughs> because, you know, they, it's, it's screen. It's a series of screen names that are, that are like conspiring together to, to go after uh, Chris Chan. Um, so if I may, Stephen, I kind of want to recall how she was caught because I think that is extremely important. Uh, sure. But one thing I wanted to ask you, maybe before we get a little too far off field, is uh, going back to Barb for a second. That was the name of City. Uh, That's his mother. Yes. OK. Is, is it possible that some of these trolls might have been in contact with her and were maybe pushing her towards this uh, event? <laughs> I don't really know. Um, I don't really know because she is she is senile. She does have dementia. Okay. okay. So, yeah, so she's out of her mind. So, yeah, that might, I mean, I know I had read something about how she had possibly had some kind of mental issues as well. But, yeah, I'm still kind of wondering if maybe on top of that, somebody was also maybe nudging her in this direction, too. I mean, who knows? But, yeah, it's it's very strange. But, anyway, continue with the thread that you were on, uh, please, Doc. So, basically, what happened was, is that eventually um, the, the four-hour incest call between Janky and Chris Chan was leaked and it was it was linked on a Reddit called, you know, uh, slash Chris Chan. Uh, Chris Chan has his own uh, Reddit. I think he still does. So they leaked on it. And the, the person who leaked it was a person named Fiona and Fiona for, for all the people to know was her name, her screen name was Sutris. And Sutris had an actual crush on Chris Chan. That's sort of the irony of all this is that uh, there was somebody that had a crush on Chris Chan, could have been his uh, real-life girlfriend, and uh, could have actually saved Chris Chan from this, this, this whole entire ordeal, uh, but, but uh, was, was not able to. And uh, Isabella sort of got in the way of, of all that as well. She sort of drove unfortunately fiona after she leaked the entire details which she had been 
withholding, uh, not for the same purposes that Isabella was doing. She was trying to use it for blackmail and to induce suicide in Chris Chan. Uh, but to um, to sort of because she didn't want she had a crush on Chris Chan. She didn't want to believe it. Um, and she didn't want to ruin the whole like, uh, you know, the whole mystique around uh, Chris Chan. So what she did is she dropped it because she was the moderator on slash Chris Chan. And this after she dropped it, it started trending. As you could say, it went viral. It literally went viral. It was a sensation. And uh, it it started it started quite a scandal. Uh, naturally, people who hated Josh Moon used it to their advantage. Uh, that is like you know Ethan Ralph, and uh, they used it to to his advantage to to discredit Josh Moon. Um, so this lingered in the background for a, for a long time before it was actually. Uh, discovered, and that's kind of a wonder. the The police didn't arrest uh, Chris Chan for incest until much later, in, until like a, maybe a month after the the entire four hour, uh, you know, discussion between Janky and Chris Chan. It didn't arrest him until, you know, until well after. And what blew her cover? What blew Isabella Janky's cover was her gloating. She started gloating about it. She started saying because it was viral, because they said, oh, we broke the Internet. Uh, because despite the fact that she could never induce like Chris Chan to suicide, she wanted to be, you know, like I said, famous. She wanted to have clout. And uh, she started gloating. She started posting over these different sort of sock puppets, these different troll saunas. Um, so naturally, the Kiwi Farms being, you know, and detectives that they are started a thread because they had found the <coughs> they had found the tape they had found the tape you know they had found the christian incest tape they started a thread and it was attached to a name called tenth anonymous tenth anon and tenth anon they discovered was connected to a real life uh facebook group let me find the name of that uh, particular Facebook group, but it was Kelly Osborne. It was uh, connected to a, uh, a Facebook group called Kelly Osborne. And they started to believe that this was the real name of the person that it had that was in the tape. Now, at the same time, Isabella is is um, actually posting on on Kiwi Farms saying that uh, saying that this is this is not a fem- this is not even a female voice. She's trying to do damage control. And she's enlisting, of course, her real life friends, which were in the chess discord. And she was trying to do amount, you know, tremendous amounts of damage control. And she was saying that this is a reverse pitch male. This is not a female. Um, now, what's interesting is that Chris had given Josh a picture of what Bella looked like. No one knew what Bella looked like because it was all anonymous. And, you know, he started... Um, Josh matched the picture to a Reddit account uh, of, I think, Kelly Osborne uh, rescuing the dog Max, rescuing her dog Max. And he put it all together. They confronted Isabella and um, she was uh, she was officially kicked out of Kiwi Farms, but not after causing credit damage. And even then, 
even then she tried to drop an eight page document stating it was not her. It was not her at all. Uh, that, you know, her name was fake, that her name was like, uh, you know, that, that Isabella Janky, that's a fake name. Uh, so, I mean, that, that is, that's how this whole thing was sort of figured out that she had done it. And she, uh, and in the attempt, she had also tried to frame countless of people, including her former roommates and that they were responsible for, uh, for, you know, the whole entire incest, uh, invoking it's you know the the incest incident in chris chan and that would be the the end of the incest affair with uh isabella oh thank goodness for that (laughs) definitely all right so real quick let's address how this group called was it praetor praetor uh and the praetor yes at at etsy fit in well praetor was um was were kind of like the real life uh, before the uh, Watchmen group ever existed. They were the people that uh, met with Chris Chan. They lived locally, and they wanted to help Chris Chan sell his uh, Sonichu medallion so that he could have a source of income. And um, that that was their their goal. And they were selling these sort of uh, Sonichu. Uh, medallions and also access to the uh, Golden Temple of Sonichu on Discord. Uh, that was her role in the entire thing. And what's interesting, and and I, I don't know if I mentioned this previously, but uh, Isabella Janky was contacted by one of the Praetor group uh, to produce a Sonichu intro, to produce a Sonichu cartoon. There was plans to make a Sonichu cartoon, and and she was uh, she, she has a uh, you know, for all her, I guess, I guess you could say even like, uh, you know, evil and dark twisted people sometimes do have talents and she is a good animator. Uh, so they did contact her on that regards. And uh, that's how they sort of uh, fit into the whole ordeal. All right, Jason. So let's start getting into Kiwi Farms. What is its official origin story? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> What a story it has. What a story it has. And pretty much we've went over it. Uh, we've went over most of like uh, sort of its origins. Um, basically, it's, it's all centered around Chris Chan. It, it all came from like when Chris Chan first appeared in 2007, when he first posted Sonichu and people started making fun of it. Uh, it was pretty much made to document every aspect of Chris Chan's life and his presence on the Internet and uh, to document other locales as well. That's uh, where it came. And Josh Moon initially called it C Wiki, uh, which was a which was a Chris Chan Wiki. And uh, Josh Moon later d- would develop that into uh, Kiwi Farms from 2000. I believe 2014 was when the official uh, Kiwi Farms uh, name was came about, but it was initially kind of uh, tr- Chris Chan Wiki. So it was just to it was just basically to document uh, various different locales and uh, Chris Chan being, of course, the OG locale. And no, it's just fascinating. I mean, very much like a whole website dedicated to document. a whole website, an entire. I mean, if you were to comprise um, a book, it would just have reams and reams and volumes and volumes of uh, of Chris Chan. Yeah, uh, but again, gang stalking couldn't be possible. <laughs> um, 
But anyway, Doc, uh, so what was the composition of Kiwi Farms audience and the targets? Okay. Now, let me just say that I don't know if journalists actually, I don't know if there's any journalists out there, but I've often seen Kiwi Farms depicted in like the media that it's it's like a far right uh, you know, forum. But really, it's apolitical. There are people from all, I would say, walks of life that post on Kiwi Farms. Uh, pretty much, if you were to comprise a freak show in a circus, put it on the internet, uh, put it under, like, instead of a tent, put it on, you know, put it on a, a forum or a message board, that is Kiwi Farms. It is Every single kind of uh, genre, walk of life, gender, um, sexual orientation, it's everybody. Everybody is represented in Kiwi Farms. It's um, That's the basis of it. It's not far right. It's not far left. Although I, I will admit there are like people from uh, the extremist spectrums of both the far right and the far left. And it does seem to be a place now for a lot of, uh, you know, uh, turf feminist seem to have taken a, a liking to Kiwi Farms. Uh, really, it's just in a symbol of troll armies, uh, locales, and every single uh, underbelly of the internet is, is represented on Kiwi Farms. That is pretty much demographics. And let me say also, uh, if you were to imagine somebody that's just terminally online, you know, a terminally online person, meaning... <laughs> A kind of troll that uh, there's there's rappers there's like uh, snack rappers everywhere they're uh, they're they're sort of living off uh, let's just say disability benefits uh, it really is that stereotype when it comes to kiwi farms there are people like that but there are other people that are from all walks of life as well that's uh, pretty much the demographics of uh, kiwi farms. Just fascinating. I mean, it really is. <laughs> All right. So how about this Josh Moon guy? He's quite an enigma. What is his story? Okay. Let me just say, once upon a time in the crazy sunshine state of Florida, in the panhandle of Escambia County, there was born a man. He would make a digital sideshow. And the biggest digital sideshow out of a circuit out of the circus. He would make this sideshow to where it'd be enjoyed uh, without the admission of any kind of tickets, so that people could compile one of the best catalogs of who's who of extreme politics in every single fringe subculture on the internet. He was one of those kids that you would often see in self-contained classes, you know, when you went to school, but it wouldn't be that he was stupid. It wouldn't be that he was disabled. It's just that his parents really hated him. Um, he is like, by the way, he's quite an enigma to people, but he gives a lot of detail about his life over these various different live streams he does over on uh, uh, Slobbermut live streams. It used to be Kiwi Farms, but now it's like Slobbermut. That's sort of the icon of Kiwi Farms. It's this dog, that slobbering dog that's kind of a mutt. Um, now, he spent most of his teenage years in a kind of depressive state. Um, he said he said in countless of other streams that he loves weird people uh, while he was attending high school. And he wanted 
to like interact uh, with these weird people. And that was why he made Kiwi Farms is to doc uh, to uh, document extreme, you know, extreme eccentric people. Now he starts his digital footprint on something called Blockland. Now he went under the troll sauna iBands. Now, in case for people that don't know, Blockland was a Lego first-person shooter, which in many ways was the precursor to Roblox and Minecraft. As you can guess, he was met with tremendous amounts of approval. During his years there, he left a trail of admirers, being voted the 10th worst forum user. He has a literal multi-volume thread, which runs for 120 page pages of his trolling. Of course, to show their appreciation for his trolling, they made sure to kick him out, probably an exaggerated number, 9,000 times on the forum he was banned. Um, there was a forum user actually by the name of Stalking that accused him of pestering her for her address to visit her. Now, they make rape allegations about this, but I personally, I don't believe that's true. Um, now, she alleges rape, but who knows? Uh, but he wouldn't stop harassing her. His time at, at Blockland, of course, was productive, uh, producing a city RPG mod, which he made in uh, January 24, 2012. Along the way, um, it seems like he lived up his he lived up to his reputation of attracting weirdos, because he attracted get this another spree shooter, you know, as if this uh, you know already Kiwi Farms wasn't jam packed with uh, spree shooters. Uh, the Aztec High School spree shooter William Ak Atkinson, or Atkinson. That is uh, pretty much uh, Josh Moon's origins, or what we know of it. Do you happen to know where in Florida he was? Uh, he came from Pensacola. Pensacola, okay. The Panhandle. All right, I was trying to remember. Yeah, okay. So it wasn't. It would be funny if he was uh, from around the Tampa area. That's where the. Um, well, obviously that's where the um, um, the headquarters for the Special Operations Command is, but it's also near gibsonton which is where like a lot of the uh sideshows sideshow yes carnivals used to like winter yeah uh so yeah that would uh, be kind well of... he's the quintessential florida man i would say yeah 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 i mean no, florida is already a strange place it is it is i i lived there for yeah almost 30 years it's it's very strange so can't say that i'm totally shocked that he hails from there uh, <laughs> Gosh. All right. And yes, all the spree shooters and everything. My goodness. Um, ah. What are the links between Josh Moon, alias Null, and uh, Kiwi's founder and uh, a chap called Frederick Brennan, alias Hot Wheels? Uh, for those of you who don't follow the whole QAnon saga, Brennan was the founder and later admin for uh, the infamous 8chan website, as well as an early figure in Gamergate. Uh, he cut his teeth on 4chan, something awful, all these other glorious places we've been talking about. Uh, he eventually sold 8chan to the Watkins and worked for them for a time, but he eventually broke away and remade himself as one of their biggest detractors. Uh, if you've seen Q Into the Storm, he's featured quite uh, prevalently in it. Uh, now he's arguably become one of the world's leading censorship advocates. Uh, previously, he was resident of the Philippines, uh, after obviously coming from the States originally. Uh, so 
what does the uh the moon slash brennan relationship consist of dog slave master relationship sounds about right they both basically shared uh what's interesting is they both shared their interest in uh wizards prostitute for a second i was like oh my god don't say (laughs) yeah don't worry it's it's already disturbing enough we're not uh, layering it thick on there um but yes they they sort of both uh shared their uh love of wizards and uh chastity seemed to have been like a common theme on the forum that they they have both met on of all places of course hot wheels uh would later like lose his virginity um and i think he actually bought the wizard website uh and he gave like josh a uh a position on uh, on 8chan he gave as a moderator now of course like josh you know being the stellar uh forum poster he is as he was on Blockland. Uh, for the most part, on his like you know on his foray into into like uh, being an HN moderator, um, he promised he promised Hot Wheels that uh, he would he would bring his website to the next level that he could program uh, code on his website and create something called Infinity Infinity Next. Uh, but the only thing is, Josh failed uh, multiple times and he couldn't even migrate the website. Uh, and he didn't quite have the coding or the field testing skills he said he did. And um, and so Hot Wheels naturally uh, was, you know, perturbed by all this and kicked Josh off the uh, off the forum and uh, said he was like not worth the trouble and that any future in like uh, HN, uh, you know, he wouldn't uh, he would he would not include Josh. And of course, not with uh, not where. Not wherewithal without scamming about twelve thousand uh, dollars from Hot Wheels, um, you know. And Josh actually went to the Philippines to work on this, uh, which kind of makes me wonder how, why would someone like uh, in their early twenties, uh, fresh out of high school, go to the Philippines? I mean, I don't know. Uh, the Philippines has a connection to so many people that are part of internet culture. Um, and and also like you could say maybe government ops even uh so i mean what is the connection to philippines well, to be perfectly honest i mean i think it goes back to the long sort of legacy of sex trafficking there uh and then going into the modern era it was a great region to set up some of these porn hub sites i mean not just for the u.s but i mean also uh for japan as well uh, again, I suspect, I mean, a lot of dark web servers are there uh, specifically to, you know, uh, put the kitty porn and possibly even more extreme stuff than that uh, into these avenues. You know, again, there's a lot of uh, advantages to having this stuff set up in the Philippines for various legal reasons. And um, potentially some of the stuff can also be maybe filmed there, let's just say hypothetically. It, you know, it does have that kind of strange legacy uh, of some of that kind of stuff. Well, either way, um, <laughs> let's just say um, Josh didn't leave a good impression on uh, on Frederick uh, Brennan, and uh, they soon uh, departed one another. But uh, like I said, he walked off with twelve thousand dollars and bragged to everybody on the internet that he owned, uh, you know, a chan. That was his, it was basically his server. 
make what you will of that. And that uh, concludes the whole saga with uh, Brennan and, and Josh Moon. All right, so when did uh, Bell and Company become involved in all of this? Um, she became a part of like uh, she became a part of like you know Kiwi Farms and Chris Chan, uh, basically back in uh, with the Prater Group, uh, having to produce, you know, a Sonichu intro. That was how she sort of uh, weaseled her way into the whole entire uh, Chris Chan saga and the whole Kiwi Farms ordeal. So, like, what is the time frame we're talking about with all this? 2020 to yeah. 2019 to 2020. All right. So, and when was Josh Moon involved with uh, Hot Wheels? Uh, two, I believe two, 2014, I believe. 2014. Okay, so this was, like, around the yeah. Gamergate thing prior to, like, yes. the reluctance. As a matter of fact, it, it, was, uh, it played a prominent role in Gamergate. At least A-Chan did. I don't think Josh okay. Moon did. All right. Yeah, yeah. And no, I know Hot Wheels was big in that. Okay, so okay, just trying to like get all the time frame of this uh, together. But yeah, this is interesting too that some of the stuff was playing out kind of going into the elections and what have you as well. Yeah, everything's playing out concurrently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely something to keep in mind. It seems like this especially weird stuff always gets going around the elections. So yeah. Okay, so what about uh, the suicides the website had managed to induce? I know we've already talked about that a little bit, but do you want to go full bore into that now? Okay, so this is a rather controversial aspect on this, and probably some of your listeners are, are uh, going to probably call me out on this. Um, but I think there's like only a few confirmed suicides that have been um, induced by Kiwi Farms itself. I, I, and to say this, I think what happens is like Kiwi Farms is sort of an open format to where anybody can post anything. So there are, you know, obsessive people everywhere and they latch on to certain personalities. And one of these personalities was this developer, this transgender developer by the name of Nier, um, who was very big into SNES uh, simulation and develop and a developer and lived in Japan and that's, and was really into retro gaming. And that's like one of the only uh, that and Julie Thurnberry Thurnberry are really the, the only Thurnberry I mean, are really the only suicides that I know of off, you know, off the top of my head that can be uh, attributed to Kiwi farms. But I mean, whether, you should attribute it to Kiwi Farms or not. Not that I'm, you know, advocating for Josh Moon or Kiwi Farms. I, I'm just simply saying that it is kind of an open source place. Uh, now, whether such places should exist is, uh, I think, beyond kind of the scope of this program and would probably, you know, be on another program or somewhere else. But uh, that's sort of the confirmed suicides. All right, Doc, let's get into some of the deep implications of these events. So uh, let's start talking about Bella's family. They're an interesting lot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and I'm going to try to uh, I'm going to try to uh, whittle this down because there is a lot of information on on uh, on Mike Jenke. So basically, Mike Jenke 
is Isabella's father. Her mo- her mother is an airline pilot, and her stepmother is someone that has been involved in the field of psychology and also in a special agent. Uh, Mike Jenke especially is is interesting because he he served out as a Navy SEAL six member, and he's been in every kind of hot zone you can imagine, uh, from the Balkans down to the Dirty War in El Salvador. Uh, he's been everywhere, literally everywhere. Yemen, um, you know, uh, Rwanda, you name it. He's been in a lot of the different uh, uh, nation-shaping events over the the, the 90s and uh, even into the early aughts. Uh, so that's a little background on uh, Mike Jenke. He's also a venture capitalist uh, that figures prominently into Silicon Valley. That is uh, Mike Jenke's background. And of course, her mother uh, has been involved in uh, various different like uh, operations as uh, as both a uh, secret service agent and also as like other as protection and security for, uh, you know, the Colombian uh, Colombian officials. And of interest uh, with Mike Jenke is there is, uh, you know, the venture capitalist is called Data Tribe and. Uh, what's interesting, Mike Jenke doesn't have a background, let's just say, in you know Silicon Valley. He doesn't have any kind of technical expertise per se. Most of what he's 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 uh, actually doesn't even have a college degree. Uh, most of the stuff that he's involved with is cybersecurity and encryption. Uh, that is primarily his forte, and uh, most of his groups are involved with. Well, I will say, in fairness to Jenke, I, I don't think Snowden had a um, college degree either, if I remember correctly. Uh, he could have simply just been, uh, you know, very computer savvy. Uh, that does seem to be the case with a lot of the best. Uh, they didn't necessarily learn their skills uh, at a, you know, formal university in that regard. So, but yeah, it's again, very enigmatic. This guy was clearly a special operator for his yes. life. So, uh, again, another, uh, one of the enigmas to this, and there's another big one with him too. And those are the links to two former, uh, KGB slash FBI agents. So what's up with that? So basically part of, um, Isabella Jenkins you know, companies also includes, he also includes uh, this refugee resettlement and also resettlement of people that get stranded in foreign countries on special operations. That is American operations. The KGB and FSB people that he speaks about, by the way, with his interview with his daughter, which is rather interesting. uh, If you can, you know, you can find it out there because everything is being scrubbed is he goes over this uh, husband and wife couple that are a part of the uh, that, that are part of this these operations and the FBI um, and and the Russian government they work uh, sometimes with uh, with the Russian mob uh, that is with like these different various Russian mobs so one the husband was involved with one Russian mob that didn't really like the other because they they owed him money and he needed to provide protection for uh for these these various different mob uh you know these mob officials wanted to go after the the uh the husband and therefore also go after the wife 
so he was in charge of trying to resettle them and to get them a new identity. And like I said, he, he created a, a logistics company uh, just for this uh, specific purpose. Uh, so he forged, uh, I don't really say you could say forged, but he made special passports and created like new identities for these people out of the blue. And he shipped them off to, let's say, the Dominican Republic. From the Dominican Republic, they were rendezvoused with the CIA. The CIA resettled them. Uh, they made it to Miami. And from Miami, he went to Virginia. And from that point, uh, they were involved. They were deeply entrenched with U.S. intelligence uh, in Oregon. And uh, they worked for his company for a little while until they became uh, naturalized citizens. So that's sort of the relationship with the FSB and uh, former KGB, uh, you know, members. Like, um, uh, that's kind of interesting. They, they had that relationship, but it's not alien to, uh, you know, to someone like Mike Janke. It definitely indicates uh, he's more than just, uh, you know, a private, uh, uh, let's just say an entrepreneur or a private venture uh, cybersecurity uh, specialist. Well, it seems like the family, too, has some kind of roots and potentially somewhere in Eastern Europe. Again, he's also been working with KGB agents and this kind of thing. It's just, or excuse me, FSB agents, the X ones here. It, it's just interesting, again, in light of all this playing out uh, going into the 2020 election and then uh, subsequent events since then, you could see these groups possibly working either way. Maybe, I mean, he's been co-opted by elements within current regime in Russia, for some kind of bizarre influence operation, but I mean, most likely it's probably the opposite. So potentially another strange dynamic of all of this. Well, you know, Stephen, before we go, you know, before we get out of that, what I was just, what I was kind of shocked by, or kind of, I mean, not really surprised by because of, you know, familiarity with like parapolitics is how much organized crime sort of uh, interacts with U.S. intelligence and uh, vice versa, how much, you know, criminal organizations are entrenched even in Russia, uh, which would be in you know another show, but that's kind of interesting into itself. Yeah, well, especially in Russia. I mean, in that, yeah, I mean, it would be another show, but I mean, you know, to sort of try to simplify this as much as possible, uh, really going back to the 1980s, or you know, probably even further, like the late 70s, the KGB was really aware of the fact that. Uh, the Soviet Union just would not be able to compete economically with the United States. It was basically going bankrupt. They had to start privatizing things, but pressingly, they needed immediate infusions of cash to sustain, you know, some of the operations and other stuff that they wanted to. So going into the 1980s, there was that concern on the one hand, and then on the other side of uh, the spectrum, We've often liked to use bribery and corruption over here to turn foreign governments. So it kind of created a perfect storm in Eastern Europe in the 1980s, where you started to see a lot of trafficking breaking out. And this, you know, really tied in uh, with the, you know, with the war in Afghanistan that Russia was fighting at the time. This is well known by now the Mujahideen was partly subsidizing themselves through heroin. A lot of the heroin was ending up in Italy where the Italian mafia could traffic it. Uh, it's tied in all the stuff with the uh, you know propaganda Dewey and what have you. Uh -huh. But um, a lot of the, uh, the opium was going through Bulgaria 
in other parts of the communist bloc and route to Italy. And this was being facilitated by the KGB and elements of the, um, you know, local uh, intelligence services. And I mean, again, this was mainly uh, to raise money and funds and so forth. But this was really the beginning of uh, what we now think of as the Russian mafia as a major power. But I mean, a lot of it from the very beginning, it was very closely intertwined with the Soviet intelligence services and their vassals in Eastern Europe, and also with our intelligence services. So this has been a very murky netherworld for a long time now. And again, it kind of stands to reason with things ratcheting up uh, with Russia going into 2020 and the election and all this other kind of stuff that this would have probably been one of the primary avenues that we would have used for active measures organized crime is so prolific in modern day Russia. So, I mean, it would be a logical uh, means to both gather intelligence and uh, carry out other things. So it's another reason why we maybe shouldn't be surprised that uh, the U.S. has fared pretty well in this outing against the Russians in Ukraine in terms of having uh, generals (laughs) and things like that assassinated and so forth. So there's just a lot of... interesting things like that playing out in the backdrop of what would nominally seem like an utter freak show we didn't even really get into like what her killing animals and what the bestiality and some of the other stuff right uh bella that is to say yeah <laughs> uh which rest right. in peace to the various different uh animals she's killed yeah good god um but anyway, Jenky, uh, uh, is there anything else you got in the FB- SBF agents? No, that? that's pretty much it. Uh, okay. It's it's all, by the way, it's all recounted in that interview that his, uh, his daughter did with him for a school project. Uh, so anyway, Jenky's companies later had issues with Chinese hackers. Uh, can you get into that for us, Doc? Yeah, I'll try to, I'll try to condense it down because that is quite a, uh, that's also quite a, a long uh, affair into itself. So what I could glean from that is that um, the counterintelligence was investigating like security breaches and the malicious chipsets in one of his companies, actually two of his companies, one being super micro um, that appeared like, you know, the, the hardware was tampered with. And uh, this was kind of a, not just commonplace within his particular chips, but also commonplace in uh, the Intel Corp and a lot of the other, uh, places where the government was contracting out uh, for the chipsets. Uh, so it, it turns out that there was like a hidden sort of hardware component, which uh, sort of siphoned off information and gave them um, backdoor exploits uh, into various different servers. And uh, this was detected and he was briefed about it. And they isolated this to that all these people were getting this from a particular company uh, or a manufacturer somewhere in San Jose, California. Uh, and that was the source of, of all these like security breaches. Um, now, in terms of his, his like uh, super micro, he didn't disclose uh, what was the source of his, um, you know, the, the forensics or any of the background. But what's interesting is, is Janky. Uh, not only has his foot in like the private sector uh, with a lot of these groups, and he also has it, you know, in the, the government sector with the FBI. He is the number one uh, security consultant when it comes to, like to the FBI. They always consult him and quote him on these various different uh, 
articles when it's written about all these security breaches uh, about them. Now, what's interesting about this is not just Janky himself, but it, it appears that in 2013, the U.S. government knew about these, but they did not... Um, they did not disclose this information because, but they were using this this as a way to spy on the Chinese, the way to look into the the Chinese, to look on what they knew and what kind of uh, technology, what kind of uh, you know computer technology they had, uh, what kind of digital technology they had. Um, but like I said, uh, they claim the U.S. Uh, you know Department of Defense only claims a small amount of things were breached, like names of let's just say informants and uh, names of um, certain kind of uh, corporations that were tied with uh, American intelligence. They, I mean, of course they say that in the article that not much of significance was lost in terms of military secrets. Kind of illustrates that they're running this sort of operation with Jenki where they're knowingly using uh, software that he has that's been compromised by Chinese hackers in a bid to uh, basically assess their capabilities. I think it's uh, certainly a sign that he was trusted with some very significant intel work. By, by the way, but before we go on and move away from like Mike Jenki and get into the step, the stepmother, what's interesting is that I've heard you talk on previous farm episodes about the whole Utah intelligence uh, apparatus that's being built. And it appears that he is very prominent in that. He has a co corporation called Strider, uh, which deals with um, uh, business and also government. Uh, uh, he's, he's linked to that. He's linked to that as a uh, cybersecurity. Are you saying he's like based directly out of Utah or? No, just... no, he's not based out of Utah. One of the, he owns these different corporations or he's he's boards and he's head of these uh, various different corporations, and one of them is Strider, which is based in Utah, um, and he's on the board and he's like kind of one of the uh, co-founding members of it. I thought that was interesting. Oh yeah, no, I wasn't aware of that, but yes, no, that is very interesting. So would this be like in the the Provo area or something like? I that? believe so. Yes, okay. I believe so. Then yeah, he's probably part of that nexus, and I mean, I've, I've talked about this before too, but I mean that that data center is at camp williams which also houses i think it's the 19th special forces group i have fbi documents actually with the sister group i think it's the 20th that's uh, on the east coast uh, but more or less these are the two special forces groups um that are part of the u.s national guard but uh the fbi documents i have the one on uh, the east coast which i think is uh, based out of uh Birmingham, alabama if i remember correctly they were probably tied in with continuity of government. Uh, they were actually, the FBI had inadvertently stumbled onto some of the members during the PATCON investigation uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, when they were looking into some of the white supremacist groups in the aftermath of the orders, bank robberies. Uh, this included the Civilian Material Assistance Group, one of the orders of St. John. Uh, they might have actually looked at a, you know, Timothy McVeigh in this investigation as well. Uh, but one of the really disturbing thing that you encountered is um, some of the support, the civilian material assistance group, and I think another even more militant group, the Phantom Battalion, I think is what it was called, uh, were potentially getting support from the 20th Special Forces group, which uh, the FBI documents indicated, as I said before, were involved with continuity of government operations, uh, though this would be in keeping uh, with some of the stuff that's come out with the stay-behinds and 
Europe, where, again, it seemed like U.S. Special Forces were frequently uh, aiding far-right groups uh, as possibly auxiliary units that could be used in the event that continuity operations were initiated. So in the case domestically, uh, there is the possibility that something like that was being done here. I don't know if the unit in Utah was involved in the same kind of activities, but I do know that a former member of it was later involved in training a militia for um, one of the fundamentalist uh, Mormon sects, uh, the all right family of church, was it the United Apostolic Brethren or something like that. But they had incidentally set up the whole sort of like militia and like kind of like doomsday uh, area, bug out area for the uh, congregation uh, in the event that, you know, civilization collapsed or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's interesting that this guy not only would have a company strider there, but also given the fact that he is a special operator and has that kind of yeah background and in that specific region, that does raise a lot of very interesting possibilities. It, it's also interesting his daughter is like adjacent to a lot of the uh, far right internet culture, even though Kiwi Farms is yeah. not exactly affiliated with the far right she seems to have been she immersed herself more like she's trying to drag some of the elements of kiwi farms into the far right yes so yeah this all right so before we get under a goodness gracious okay. cloud strike right click well okay now hosted kiwi farms right yeah yeah that's actually it was it was cloud fair that uh that hosts kiwi farms uh not really cloud strike it is a part of it um but that came in this came into like the press recently because you know that kiwi farms is having trouble keeping its server up um and a lot of people think this is because of uh keffels which is like some i believe transgender activist uh but actually it's not really that's not really the case um that's a whole entire believe me that's a whole entire segment and maybe perhaps um if you invite me back on, we can talk about that because that is the whole swatting ordeal and the whole Discord swatters is an entire thing onto itself. But Keffels um, is getting swatted uh, day and night by people and uh, sort of dragging it out. But people have to realize this is kind of part and parcel of Internet culture as they dox you if they don't like you, if they don't like your your politics or whatever. They find your address. They call the police on you. They tell you that you're involved in some kind of crime and they just do it incessantly. And they'll just keep doing this over and over and over again. And Kiwi Farms, of course, gets blamed for every single uh, one of these incidents. Uh, but I think it's not really Kiwi Farms doing it. It's just people that are maybe adjacent and post on the forum because it is, a, like I said, just about anyone can register on it. Uh, so... A lot of people think it's Keffels and it's like leftist uh, sort of activist groups that are, uh, you know, calling on like hate speech and hate strikes on Kiwi Farms. But I'm of the belief that I think it is Isabella uh, Jenke's father, Mike Jenke, uh, that's probably doing it because this guy has connections uh, through Dragos Incorporated, which is the partners of CloudStrike, which... Uh, is linked also with Cloudfair. Uh, they are they, they're partners. Dragons or something like that. His name is Dragos. Yeah. 
<laughs> Dragos Incorporated, yeah. Uh, so I think due to his his connection to Dragos, I think he, uh, you know, and the fact that he he also can be seen in different conferences with the CEO of of Cloudflare, that that is most likely the candidate of uh, DDoSing and and also maybe even like striking striking it. So I don't think it's anyone ideologically. I think they're just trying to cover the tracks of like his spoiled uh, daughter that uh, that is, uh, you know, his sociopathic spoiled daughter, as opposed to just uh, any kind of, uh, you know, political affiliation. That's my belief on on the uh, why Kiwi Farms gets struck down uh, constantly. No, it's uh, it certainly would make a lot of sense. All right, so let's get into Bella's stepmother here for a moment. That would be uh, Dr. Mary Beth uh, Wilkes Jenke. There's a big gap in her history between 1992 and 2004. She worked for the U.S. Secret Service in 91 and 92, then held a similar gig in Colombia between 04 and 05. Uh, That's Colombia, the country, by the way. Uh, In between, she got a degree in 1999 at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, there's not much else there about what she was up to during those 12 years. And as far as I know, I mean, it's not like she was having a kid or anything, at least from what I could tell from looking at the family history. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts is my theory is this is after she became like a special agent and, and she did all these like details. I think she went to work for one of these um, kind of off the books uh, defense contracting or think tanks that front as a defense contracting sort of just uh, really they're just like scams, you know, uh, anti-terrorist think tanks. Uh, like, are you familiar with something called track? Uh, no, I'm not. Well, track is like this something that just sprouted. It sprouted up out of nowhere to track various different like extremist groups, all the way from environmentalist to acceleration to right-wing accelerationist. Uh, and I think she probably went to go work for one of those, uh, one of those corporations and she utilized her, uh, expertise, uh, in that manner, as opposed to working, you know, directly for the government. So I think that's, that's probably what she was doing in those, those lost years that you, uh, recount, uh, and, and that is not discussed. And here's the thing also is that everything about Mike Janke, Isabella Janke is getting scrubbed off the internet. Uh, and including their LinkedIn, a lot of this is documented on either Kiwi Farms itself or upon, you know, archived uh, sites on archive.org. Uh, so it's it's being royally scrubbed. So if I had to guess and I had to say where she was probably going in those years, I would probably say she was going for a private uh, contracting. And let, let me just say also, regardless of how you feel about, you know, political extremism, A lot of these anti, uh, and by the way, they're tied heavily to corporations. Corporations uh, monitor political extremism. Uh, They're very tied into like capitalist ventures. They they have cataloged every single kind of uh, extremist group uh, from the far, uh, historically, by the way, also. You can find everything from Adam Waffen to Bader Meinhof to the Red Brigade uh, to various different extremist groups that existed during the years of lead in Italy. So they are all documented there on track. And I think uh, Miss, uh, I think Miss Janky, Miss Mary Beth uh, Wilkes Janky was probably, uh, you know, providing her expertise to these types of 
operations, which in many ways, I mean, depending on like who you are, I could say are, are largely scams. Uh, that's one thing I've learned about anti-terrorism and a lot of these other groups. They're largely scams. They largely just seem like they're fronts for corporations and for Wall Street investors uh, to invest in and to play uh, sort of the, the stock market and to get money out of out of uh, both the government through contracting. And they seem to be building their own little <laughs> enterprises outside of uh, their purview of the government and also of uh, whatever specialties they have. And they're t- tied heavily into think tanks. There's certainly been a lot of speculation about that going back to the 80s, really at the onset of the, you know, anti-terror, counter-terror, whatever industry, because, yeah, I mean, it really is for a garden industry in its own right. And that really also coincided uh, with the onset of the rise of a lot of private intelligence and private military companies in the United States, at least. Uh, the process had already been kind of ongoing in the UK uh, for about a decade or so beforehand, but the 80s is when this really took off in America. But- I mean, and I also think, too, you know, just sort of going back to what you were saying, I mean, this ties into the whole legacy of industrial security, which has been going on for well over a century now. And I mean, frequently corporations would use ex-military and law enforcement personnel to, you know, like you're saying, keep track of a lot of these different uh, quote-unquote extremist groups, uh, which, I mean, in some cases it was warranted, in other cases maybe not so much. But I mean, this is, you know, kind of a time-honored practice in a lot of ways. But think about this, Stephen, and I've, uh, from my investigations into extremism, what I've discovered is they have kind of a feedback loop to one another is the intelligence agencies uh, through the use of informants and through the use of uh, agitators, they seem to feed off one another. It seems political extremism feeds off these intelligence agencies. These intelligence agencies preempt a lot of violent activity and uh, they just have this like feedback loop where they feed off one another and they, um, uh, instead of like preventing it per se, or you know, providing maybe better conditions for countries, it is often kind of used as a scapegoat and a boogeyman. And I saw this like during uh, post uh, 9/11 uh, with you know with Muslims and and other uh, groups of people. So it does seem like uh, you know an industrialized neoliberal uh, democracy needs these types of boogeymans to coexist and these uh, intelligence corporations, these think tanks, they tie directly into corporations, tie directly into hedge funds and Wall Street, and they all seem to feed off one another. There's their own little ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, it really is a feedback loop, like you're saying, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, you need this sort of political violence uh, to keep workers in line, but I mean, also to try and tar uh you know, I mean, any kind of uh, genuinely progressive group is being militant, which, you know, creates the need for these security services who in turn tend to radicalize these groups who in turn may become more and more violent. Just, yeah, like you're saying, I mean, it becomes a vicious cycle uh, that effectively ensures the ongoing uh, political structure. Uh, Yeah, it's sadly, I mean, it's a process that tends to be repeated over and over again. And it's really more obvious, I mean, when you just look at this, like in a country like uh, Russia, because there's not as much of a pretext of, a, you know, being a democracy or anything like that. I mean, going all the way back uh, to the days with the Okhrana, um, 
you know, in I think it was like 1907, there was a pretty good effort made to assassinate the czar around then. And it was, you know, kind of seen uh, as a sign that the Okrana were losing their edge uh, because these extremist groups could get that close to the czar. But then it later came out that uh, the organization that had directed the assassination was under the total control of the Okrana. Uh, both the head of it and the number two man were agents of the Akrana. Uh, and once the, the top man was taken down, another Akrana guy came in there to uh, take over the outfit. So uh, what it ultimately kind of implied more than anything was that the uh, civilian government had lost control of its security service. <laughs> and, uh, you know, again, fittingly, once uh, the Tsar was overthrown, the revolution started, a lot of the Okrana men ended up going into the Cheka. And um, quite a few of the early Cheka guys have been informants for the Okrana and all this other sort of good stuff. So it's so interesting when you do look at the history of Russia, I mean, really for over a century now, how much of it's been driven by this lineage of this intelligence service which i always kind of tell people it's it's nationalist but i mean it's for russia it doesn't really care if uh you know it's under uh czardom or communism or whatever in the hell you want to call modern russia uh so long as it's uh you know it's a power so, well they they seem to be using the orthodox church uh, mainly now to uh, to influence a lot of the um, a lot of the the, the far right in, in uh, far right elements in America, but I don't want to get into that. Yeah, <laughs> that's that, what I've observed. Yeah, it would be you know, beyond the scope of this, but I mean, yeah, this is just I think ultimately how a lot of this stuff really plays out. I mean, of course, in the West, the dynamics are a little different because the corporations have far more power here than they ever really did in Russia. So. There's that dynamic, but I mean, yeah, this is the sort of uh, perpetuating feedback loops, uh, at least politically, that we all uh, uh, <clears throat> suffer under in one fashion or other. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, getting back to Jenkins mother here, uh, she's more recently been at George Washington University, which uh, I often pass by when I go into D.C. Uh, so what's up with that? Well, presently, it, it appears that she is an adjunct professor at the uh, Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences, uh, and her specialty, of course, is abnormal and psych psych psychology of crime and violence. Uh, kind of ironic, considering like who her stepdaughter is, uh, really, but that seems to be what she's primarily doing over at uh, George Washington University, uh, from what I understand, and... I believe I think also like in her resume, there is something about behavioral modification um, in in her resume. Uh, so uh, uh, let me also add in Jack, uh, she actually was a consultant on the Gabby Petito uh, uh, incident that that occurred. Uh, you know, oh, you yeah. remember that little incident? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I did a podcast with John and Radix about that. And that was another one in Utah as well. So. Wow, that's really interesting because, okay, her husband has uh, a private security company, uh, Strider, in Utah. And, yeah, a big part of the Gabby Petito thing also played out. Of course, it was in a different part of the state, more like in the southern part. Um, but, yeah, that's... The, the... Yeah, she was a, a main consultant on Fox News. They consulted her about the case, about the psychology of uh, the, the perpetrators. 
See, that's fascinating because, again, I really thought there were a lot of elements to it that being almost like an ARG, an alternate reality game or something with the way that um, they really try to involve the public and solving the crime. And then, of course, you know, after the massive search for uh, the, you know, the boyfriend in Florida, another connection to Florida, by the way. Um, yeah, yeah. With all <laughs> these cops and what have you, they, they couldn't find him. But um, yeah, a couple of Internet sleuths uh, were able to find his body. I mean, it always seems to happen that way, though. I mean, it seems the Internet uh, is a better detective agency and uh, civilians are better detective agencies than uh, the police force, it seems. That's the same thing true with uh, Isabella Janke and Kiwi Farms as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I don't dispute that in some legitimate cases, but in this case, I mean, it definitely felt yeah. like just some kind of psychodrama being played out with all of this. So that's, again, it's really fascinating that her mom would have been active in that too. So, mm. well, let, let me say also something uh, going circling back to like Isabella Janke in regards to like the grooming. What's interesting is that there is document of her doing incest fanfic. I didn't mention this earlier, but there is like, uh, there's, there's also where she had an entire server where she had CP, which uh, she was like, I mean, they, that recently came out there. There's still stuff unfolding about Isabella Janky putting it together, the pieces uh, about her like exploits. Uh, in addition to that, it seems like, um, a lot of she was into really trauma inducing types of stuff. You know, a lot of trauma inducing I've seen on the Internet is where people will spam gore. They'll spam like, you know, uh, stuff like C- borderline CP stuff. Uh, it's just she was and she was doing this uh, repeatedly in various different servers, terrorizing people, uh, sometimes not even like uh, implicated in like whatever exploits she was doing but uh, that's i don't know how to psychopaths and sociopaths they have a certain like trajectory and uh a certain type of characteristic she seems to go beyond what i've seen uh of like the the dsm qualifications of what is a a psychopath or a sociopath she doesn't seem to be very covert about it either she seems to like display this uh with pride uh like she's proud of it so that definitely tells me that well, yeah, potentially. I mean, Go ahead. Like what videos of like what her torturing hamsters? Yes. Also, in getting like, one of her friends, a cat or something, so it would die. Or yes, she she force fed a cat. Uh, she also got a sexual gratification off the cat expelling gas. Um, you know, that's the kind of stuff that she was said to it. Yes, she actually, uh, you know, uh, drowned the hamster to say, "Die, fucker, die." You know, she was doing stuff like that. So I don't know. It be, it seems to be going beyond a lot of the implications of what a, a psychopath is. And uh, it does seem like there is like some unusual. If you were to look into her childhood and look into like some of the relationships that maybe her father shares with her and even maybe the airline pilot mother, uh, there does seem to be maybe some uh, trauma that was induced upon her uh, because well, that is unusual. Yeah, I mean, this does raise a lot of implications about her and her family. I mean, and again, it goes into a lot of, you know, rumors that we've all heard, especially about military families grooming their kids. I mean, uh, supposedly a big part of this uh, involves torturing animals, bestiality, uh, which I think is something else that she had expressed a certain interest in. Uh you know, again, on some ways, she does seem like she 
is a bad actor if we're looking at her as potentially an intelligence asset but on the flip side of the coin she does seem to have had a certain skill in grooming uh these different individuals despite the fact that you know as you said earlier i mean many of them were um of non-white ethnicity even though she's been yes you know, using a lot of racist comments she could be non-white ethnicity herself uh if you look yeah, at her is, picture yeah that is a fair point um but but i mean this is not rare uh steven if you ever uh, been in any of these uh or you know read about any of these extremist groups they do have uh plenty of non-white members um yeah yeah no that's definitely a valid point but i mean i more with her ability though to groom with some of these other things and i mean i do think there's also the possibility that um this you know it was meant for some of this stuff to come out into the public on some levels uh i mean and almost you know again i know that might seem a little bit of a stretch but i mean it's not uncommon for sometimes these things to come out in a really big way and then be scrubbed online i mean i'm kind of well i'm just saying that is kind of unusual it's being scrubbed as we speak right now they're they're literally going to every single internet um i mean i mean you know there's again a certain uh, researcher i had mentioned earlier uh who had been connected with gang stalking uh, a lot of her stuff is presently being scrubbed online now and i mean going back um uh, you know over a decade ago there was the whole thing with the blog dreams end and the sort of suspicion of that alternate reality game uh which was not the case with that all oh, that murdered couple i can't remember it off the top of my head but i mean again this is another incident that was really a big thing uh, for a couple of years and now i mean there's almost nothing online about it anymore oh i mean they have the expression that everything stays on the internet and it doesn't seem to be so it seems people are crafting their own reality from uh you know from the internet space yeah i mean it's definitely something that uh has happened at a few points here and in the case of some of these incidents i think especially involving like high-profile instances of social media that kind of stuff I mean it really does um okay it was the whole thing with Teresa Duncan and Jeremy Blake okay this was like a big thing going all the way back to like 07 08 uh and one of the bloggers who had followed this I was uh I never had any direct ties to it but we had had um some mutual fans and so forth but he had had some real issues with it because he had become convinced that uh he was investigating an alternate reality game the whole thing with the uh i think it was the suicides of teresa duncan and jeremy blake hmm. uh and again man, like i said this was a really big media thing i mean it was you know chronicled new york magazine and what have you back in 07 08 and now there's just there's almost nothing about it anymore and i mean i can at least on one hand you know for the uh the blogger uh i mean i in some ways, I think it's a good thing for his sake that he could maybe get away from this. But on the other hand, uh, it is, I think, in some ways, a significant event in terms of how this kind of stuff plays out in social media and what it can happen to people with it. So it's not without precedent. And, you know, again, turning one of these things into a huge media sensation and then scrubbing the, the web of it, it's... You know it's happened certainly before and it'll probably happen again um 
but yeah there are just a lot of disturbing possibilities with this with what we've seen with bella the stuff that she's done and you know just the whole thing with torturing animals and mm-hmm. i'm just saying a lot of the stuff that just the incest stuff too and some of the uh, yeah, proclivity really she has towards uh, cp is unusual uh-huh. Even for someone that is like a kind of a uh, a sociopath, let's just say, uh, well, but she's yeah. open about it. I mean, she's fairly open about it. And she's again, not ashamed. Though, getting back to some of the stuff we were talking about earlier with, um, you know, I mean, cults founding online and all this other kind of stuff. Well, I mean, you, you know, you pretty much already have. I mean, a quasi online cult around CWC. Uh, you know, you've got a woman who comes from this very curious background who has interjected herself into his life in this peculiar way. You've got a lot of this, you know, sort of quasi, I mean, almost Rosicrucian-esque stuff playing out with the blending of fiction and reality. And uh, to bring this a bit on, on home here and kind of connect it all, because I know a lot of people think I'm nuts when I keep talking about this. It <laughs> was a interesting man named colonel michael aquino oh yeah um who actually had uh gone into this whole notion of creating these worlds upon death uh for the magician to inhabit as a kind of god in fact he wrote about it in those uh mind star books that he put out towards the end of his life and another book that he put out towards the end of his life in the midst of his Mind Star trilogy was one on Rosicrucianism. He was really, really big into Rosicrucianism. Uh, so this is also a man who was, as I noted before, an army officer, and he spent pretty much his whole career in psychological warfare, which contrary to popular beliefs at least in the military is not a part of intelligence but a part of special operations because it is considered an operation so uh this whole mystical kind of uh take on psychological warfare is something that aquino has advocated and he was hardly uh the first psychological warfare officer with a lot of clout uh, in these circles to do that that would be general edward lansdale who was also a big fan of this kind of stuff so uh this is not without precedent within the u.s army special forces all right and aquino even up towards the end of his life was in contact with people like thomas schoenberger another person linked to cubanon so the possibility that these guys knew about some of this woo-woo stuff that I'm talking about really cannot be discounted because a guy like Aquino definitely knew about this stuff. And people like to go on about all of the speculations about what went on with Aquino at Presidio and, you know, this stuff is horrendous. I'm not going to try to downplay that or the possibility he was involved in some of this kind of stuff, but he most likely found ways to warp the public at large on a massive scale (laughs) through this kind of stuff and that's sadly ignored uh, in a lot of the research into uh, his activities even though that's probably the great significance of his legacy and how uh, this has potentially been carried on either through uh, branches of the military, uh, special operations forces, or probably more likely through some kinds of private entities. So 
yeah, this is something about all of this that also has to be kept in mind. And the Presidio thing and uh, the Rosicrucian thing, again, also might not be mutually exclusive if we are to look at some of the peculiarities about Bella. Again, getting in all the stuff with her torturing animals. Uh-huh. Um, so there's a lot about this uh, that is profoundly unsettling, guys. Oh, yes. It really is. So to wrap up on one final unsettling note, um, there were also rumblings of a link to the Christchurch shooting in New Zealand. Again, is this another possible in-game from all of this insanity, Doc? Well, I think uh, what what is happening now is like you're seeing a merger uh, of, you know, the the internet is interfacing with the real world, and there's a lot of uh, disconnected people out there, and right now there's uh, a lot of hysteria uh, when it comes to extremism, and I think you're going to see a lot of uh, these these antics in the future where people post uh, manifestos to stuff like Kiwi Farms and. Uh, 8chan and the various even the places like discord uh, or uh, telegram you're going to see a lot of these things sort of culminate uh, to the point to where I would even think uh, certain government agencies are going to utilize uh, these places in addition to this let me also add what I haven't add I didn't uh, you know state previously is that Kiwi Farms is a perfect catalog of various different you know Manchurian candidates and people that are not uh, exactly well adjusted, and uh, we know historically that uh, st- through stuff like MK Ultra, yeah. and I mean, it's like in this. I mean, that's kind of like the really, the really sinister. I think aspect of a lot of this is you know now you're not even having to really go out and no, let's just say hypothetically find people and groom them. You're yeah. creating like a form. They're there. You bring in all the cataloged. Ready? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, in addition to that, I will also say it, this also dovetails with a lot of the stuff that you talk about, Mimetic Gladio, um, is that, uh, like like you said, there there are, like, you know, uh, groups that don't need to stay behind armies. They don't need uh, these various different militia groups anymore to entrap uh, young, impressionable people. Uh, they can simply go on Discord. They can actually interface through video games. Uh, and other uh, media and entice a lot of these young uh, people into committing very violent acts. And like I said, they already have relatively unstable people already cataloged on stuff like Kiwi Farms uh, uh, primarily. So I think that in many ways, it's probably going to be used as a database in the future for other uh, intelligence operations uh, against the uh, far left and the far right. And it's going to create a kind of uh, process that's going to transverse into the real world and create a type of, a, like I mentioned previously, a feedback loop. Uh, to a, it probably it may escalate into a civil war, although I don't think so. I think that's it's more or less going to be just more of a psychological game that that the intelligence agencies are going to do to uh, manipulate people and to get them to commit small scale. Uh, violent uh, spree shoot spree shooting uh, incidents. Yeah, which is uh, again in keeping with Aquino's whole mind war concept. That was the, the first part of it. I'm not talking about the uh, the old school document I wrote. I'm talking about the revised one he did in the first one of the uh, mind war, uh, mind star trilogy books. 
yeah, so Aquino, also a guy who liked to write Star Wars fan fiction. <laughs> oh my god. Let goodness. me let me also say something about the Christchurch shooter. Uh, I didn't mention him, but the Christchurch shooter, uh, as you know, left his manifesto on various different image boards, uh poll, uh HN and Kiwi Farms. Well, um Josh, he actually Josh Moon was told by people to to bring down the uh, Christchurch shooting and he refused to do so that is so that's the connection that the the Christchurch shooting has to uh Kiwi Farms in general I just wanted to interject that before we go off the air yeah no I know that was also something that what Hot Wheels had originally tried to link to 8chan um but yeah it turned out to be a little different on that end but it's just so fascinating. And again, I think you're absolutely spot on, Doc, with um, you know, this whole sort of meta gladio thing that we're seeing here. Uh, because, yeah, it's just, it's not really necessary to even, not to say that they're not still astroturfing extremist groups, but I mean, it's just so easy now to find unstable individuals online and, you know, just tip the scales ever so slightly. And as we've sort of, I think, outlined pretty uh, well here you know that difficult to find this netherworld of online trolls that you can harness for these purposes either it's a very disturbing future that this uh uh points towards in that regard and a even more unsavory feedback loop than possibly some of the earlier ones we've been subjected to oh all right on that note then i guess we will uh sign off for now as always i want to thank you guys so much for listening uh and with that good night and good luck to you all come on baby pick me up out here in my wiki up sick and tired of fucking up sick and tired of pushing luck in it. Swallow what I'm about to spit. Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this. I took it to the goat chain. We were raised, my people there, they feeling me. Down low skin, roll more characters than Stephen King. Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all. I ain't in a hurry, y'all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki, up. Stuck down in this stick. But it's hot as hell, I tell you what Put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around Come on mama, jump down Turn around, do it for me Stick it out, say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump baby, we gotta go Hands tied, blindfold Jump into that battle zone I said it's time to get the fuck out Cause they done let the wolves out They're coming with that heat Mama shooting up the street Mama, fight or fight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama, no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street Tell me that you good for it You want peace, go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump, baby, we gotta go Screaming with me Scream, Geronimo Never getting used to it, got bells of weed and cattle
the boat with Santum went diffused in it Shoot it over the castle wall, the Migra can't patrol it off From Berlin to the Great Wall, the greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato, about the Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it, don't need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer, everybody even caught or realized If a farmer don't make cash money when we rock that stash Honey, best believe they sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy with people getting healthy, right? Talking about high AZ, talking about that BMC We got no economy if we ain't got no enemy The Popo and the BP, DHS and Army Honeywell and L3, Razor Wires, UAVs Officer, excuse me please Said I'm just eating my burrito, not the droids you're looking for See you all on payday, see you at the Safeway on crazy checks, BP on that fast pay I sing my hoodie blues, y'all I don't make the rules, y'all Just paying my dues, y'all But I'm just saying Sorry, hippies If Great White Father don't make payroll Forget about your maple 